風に見せた君の涙の理由はわからない今もふさかれ続ける心の痛みを誰か壊せるのだろういい Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. We are returning to the wide and wacky world of Gundam with another Weekly Suit Gundam podcast for you later today,、uh, where we will be talking about Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam, a new translation, the 2005 to 2006 movie trilogy,、uh, where Yoshiyuki Tomino came back to the franchise for one of the only times in the 2000s. To、uh, redo Zeta Gundam, the original sequel, as a series of movies. This is one we have been excited to do, and having watched the films, I am very excited to record this, Sean. Yeah, it is. A, this is one of the few ones where I had not like, properly watched through this stuff before this podcast. I'd only seen the new animated material in like, kind of bits and pieces. So, yeah, this, this, is, this will be fresh for both of us. Yes, so that will be later on today's show. But of course, there was some news this week. We had our first Nintendo Direct. Sean, get this. This was the first full length, like normal, multi game, overall press conference style Nintendo Direct since September 2019. Fuck. That's nuts. It's been almost two years because throughout 2020, they did all these like mini directs. They did a lot of game specific ones. A lot of games came out without any Nintendo Direct, like Paper Mario the Origami King, which just announced on Twitter and then came out a month later.、Um, So, like, I mean, Nintendo was hit pretty hard by the pandemic from everything we can tell in terms of, like, I don't know, not financially. They, they benefited greatly from it financially, but just in terms of development and marketing timelines. So, this was our first Nintendo Direct. So, I, I took the notes、uh, E3 style,、uh, and we will talk about that. And then we also have a little bit of news out of Blizzard,、uh, mainly around some exciting Diablo stuff.、Uh, so, we will talk about both of those in a minute. But, Sean, how have you been? What have you been up to? I've been pretty good, and I have done、uh, very little other than I watched the three Zeta Gundam movies, and I've continued to play Genshin Impact and Hitman 3. Nice.、Um, and that's, that's all I have done this whole week, other than obviously like work stuff. Right. Me too.、Uh, and it has been Genshin Impact and Mario 3D World for me. I finished Bowser's Fury、uh, 100% at that. Like, I think last week I had finished, like, I'd gone to credits, but I hadn't 100%ed it yet. So I've 100%ed that. I have beaten 3D World, and I'm now on the bonus levels, which there are a lot of bonus levels in that game, which is cool. They're very good.、Uh, I had, here's something funny about 3D World, Sean. I had, so you know that game is,、um, it's sort of modeled off of Super Mario Bros. 2, the American one, because you can play as Mario, Luigi, Peach, and Toad.、Mm-hmm. And they all have kind of similar abilities as they did in Mario 2. So Peach can float, Luigi has his little flutter jump. Toad is a little slower, and, but he's Toad, so it's, Toad's cool.、Um, so you have all of those. I have, I have played this game before, Sean. I owned it on Wii U. I played it to completion. I know I played some of the bonus levels. I have zero memory of this, but Rosalina is a playable character in that game from Mario Galaxy.、Um, you unlock her in one of the bonus levels at the end. I know I have played that bonus level. I know I've played some of the ones after it. I have no memory of ever playing as Rosalina, and she's a really cool character, and it's an awesome extra to unlock just a fifth character at the end of the game.、Um, it wasn't, and I went back and checked, it wasn't added for this release. It was there in the original, and somehow I just have absolutely no memory of that, which is weird. Yeah, that's like, I feel like the Super Mario 3D Land and 3D World 
Like, as someone who does not, like, has not played any of the modern Mario games, I always feel like they're in this weird spot where, like, they're not quite treated as in, like, culturally the same way as a Galaxy or an Odyssey. But it's also, it's not a new Super Mario Brothers, like, most people who are way into video games just kind of ignore it. And it's more something that is, sells very well and is very popular, but not with, like, the, like, video gamey crowd. And I always have found, like, it interesting that it feels like the 3D land slash world games get put into this weird, like, sort of, like, memory pocket in video game culture kind of because of that. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's it's partially because 3D Land came out early in the 3DS, and then 3D World was a Wii U game. So, like, 3D Land sold very well, but their audiences were a little limited. Uh, and they're great. I mean, the, the way you actually position them there is right. They are a midpoint between New Super Mario Bros. and different 3D games, and that's what's wonderful about them. Like, they really are what New Super Mario Bros. should have evolved into, like, after the first two games. Um, because I think New Super Mario Bros. 2 and U are both after 3D Land, and that's part of why, to me, they were so disappointing. Is It's just like, once you've played 3D Land, it's like, we don't need this anymore. This is this is the evolution of this. This feels like, if you went like Mario, Mario 2, Mario 3, Mario World, then the original New Super Mario Bros. on the DS is like Mario 5. Mario 3D Land feels like Mario 6. In the way, like, Sonic Mania felt like the next, like, Sonic 4. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so, yeah, but they're very good. I Again, I just cannot recommend enough if you have a Switch buying this package. They're, they're such good games. Mario 3D World, I had always sold a little short in my memory because I think I was comparing it to 3D Land, which I really, really love. And I do think 3D World is maybe a notch below that in some ways, but like it's a, it's a great fucking game. And any Mario fan, uh, or just someone who wants to get into platformers, it's very accessible. So, yeah, but that's what I've been having fun with. Um, I'm at the point in Genshin Impact where... I have five characters. No, I think I have six now leveled up to level 80, which is my current like level cap because I'm waiting mm. to get to adventure rank 50. Uh, and so now I'm trying to get to a full eight characters leveled all the way up so I can do some of that fucking Spiral Abyss shit. Um, <laughs> yeah, I have really done very little uh, Spiral Abyss. That is like one of the major areas of the game that I played a lot of early on when I, my characters are probably like level 50 or so, but I have not touched it since i'm like because yeah because my characters are at level 80 i'm like halfway through adventure rank 48 so okay. i'm getting pretty close to being able to nice. i'm 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 getting close and i'm like just hoarding fucking uh, experience items like a maniac because i know how much experience it takes to level up like to get from 70 to 80 is so much that it's like i just want to be able to once i go over that threshold i just want to like bop them all up immediately <laughs> so i've got something like 400 of the purple experience books just oh sort wow of saved because i just want to i just want to go all out as soon as i hit 50 yeah i have a ways to go so i haven't started like that because i'm on adventure rank 45 mm -hmm. um so i just like raised my world level again but yeah i am i'm basically so if you if you haven't played a lot of spiral abyss sean you might not know but the later levels of spiral abyss they make you split into two four person teams yeah, that's about where I I stopped playing it. Not because I didn't like it, but just because it was like yeah, I, my party was not good enough, and then I never got back around to doing it. So there's eight levels of Spiral Abyss, and I have beaten the first seven, but I have not beaten level seven in the time requirement needed to unlock level eight. And I really need to do that um, because you get a shit ton of Prima Gems. And uh, I really just need a better team because at level seven, like it's really hard, and I need like fully leveled up teams for that. So I'm working on that. I basically need... I need some better leveled up healers is what I'm working on right now. I'm getting getting Barbara leveled up because mm -hmm. she's got that healing move. So, 
anyway. But yeah, Genshin Impact is fun. We don't need to talk about that too much. <laughs> now, I did very much enjoy the because they've kind of. I think we're done with the new content for the Lantern Rite, and it's more just sort of right. like grinding out the missions and finishing it up and in, in getting the uh, materials from the store for the event and all that kind of stuff. But I really enjoyed the little. Like it's it was just like a nice, very chill kind of event. That there's no there's no like here's some like big boss or something that ends it. It's just like, no, just hang out with your buddies and just like go to this festival and like help show who's just like, you know, he's just sort of dealing with his shit because he's like five thousand years old and is weighed down with the karmic debt of the millions of demons <laughs> he's slain over his life. It's just like, dude, just sort of like sit back and like enjoy the pretty lanterns, bro. It was great. Uh, I think the the main story, but also like even the little side quests they would give you every day were like, you know, surprisingly well written and had like, there were some like really surprisingly like touching ones mixed in there. Like there was one where you were like helping a, a, a woman and her grandma and the grandma had like, you know, Genshin Impact's version of Alzheimer's and like couldn't remember anything. And it was like, this is surprisingly touching. So yeah. Or I like the like ongoing sort of mini story of Vermeer and the poet and their like <laughs> contest especially because both of those characters show up in world quests so like that I had done like two months ago so I was like oh my god I like remember you guys when I found your paintings and I did this other shit and and it, it's cool to like the way that they kind of keep those very minor characters sort of alive but their stuff is just memorable enough that when they pop up again you're like oh right yeah I remember you I remember your whole deal yeah good stuff well, you want to go ahead and jump into the news? Yeah, so what's going on in the news other than Nintendo Direct stuff, Jonathan? Let's start with the Blizzard stuff because it's simpler. Um, there were several things. That, so they're doing Blizzard. BlizzCon would normally be now, but you're not doing a convention right now. So they're doing BlizzCon Line. They didn't call it BlizzCon Online. They called it BlizzCon Line, which, fuck you, Blizzard. Um but they announced several things. Most of it I didn't care about. But there were two Diablo things I really cared about. Uh, first off, uh, let's start with the simpler one. Diablo 4 got another look. We got a look at the Rogue class. There was a big cinematic trailer that, hey, Blizzard's still really good at making those things. Mm -hmm. And we got to see some of the Rogue class in action. And, yeah, uh, if I could just please be put in, like, a medically induced coma until Diablo 4 comes out, that would be great. I really want to play this game. Yeah, no, the trailer looks great. Like, I love the the aesthetic they're going for that is, like, a little bit more, um, like, that darker gothic kind of thing that Diablo 1 and 2 had. And 3 has a slightly more kind of, like, pop gothic aesthetic where it's a lot more sort of, like, bright um, and colorful while still having, obviously, like, bloated zombie monsters and, like, blood and, and guts and all that all <laughs> over the place. But it's, it's, not, it's not quite as the sort of, like, dire feel of the original games. So I like that like glimpse of the trailer that you get a little bit more of that kind of just really sort of intense, um, dark fantasy sort of look. Yeah, and it's you know, and I it's funny because I don't think of Diablo three as like a super graphically advanced game, but it was obviously beautiful for the time. And you look at Diablo four and you're like, oh, this is properly next gen stuff we're looking at. This looks really cool. Mm -hmm. um, but then also the cinematic trailer with the rogue making her confession to the priest and giving him a bunch of severed ears, and then he puts the severed ears in a cabinet. Um, that was... The, the Diablo 4 cinematics so far have been very, very good. Yeah, and that's another thing that, like, that is feels like it would be a Diablo 2 cinematic. It's just got the, like, the weird attention paid to fucking the dude putting the ear on the spike or whatever. Yep. It's just like, oh, man, this is <laughs> gross in, like, the right way. 
I know I was sitting here watching that earlier today and I was like I like physically recoiled from my screen because they just like the amount of like detail and like the resistance in the ear as he's trying to push it through the spikes is like oh man some artists spent a long time on that yep all right, but while we are waiting to play Diablo 4, because who knows when the hell that's coming, um, we will later this year be getting Diablo 2 Resurrected, which is the remastered version of the classic Diablo 2. Um, uh, they, they did a little trailer for it in which you can look at and you can see the new graphics, but it is basically the Halo anniversary version of Diablo 2. It is Diablo 2. Very little has changed. Like, they had an interview with, I know, Rod Ferguson, who used to be at Coalition, doing Gears of War, now he's at, at Blizzard. And I think one of the other senior guys there at Blizzard was talking about this. Um, and, and they were saying, you know, every time they thought about changing something in Diablo 2, they felt it was kind of a bridge too far. So mostly it is just Diablo 2. There's some quality of life improvements, like some of the storage stuff. But it is mainly the game you remember, although now playable on a, on a controller and on consoles. Uh, and it has, like Halo Anniversary, a graphics toggle. So you can view the new graphics, which look really nice to me. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can like it, you know hit a button and switch back to the original sort of 2D style. Um, and that will be coming for everything. It'll be on PC, obviously, but also PS4, PS5, Xbox One, Xbox Series X, uh, Nintendo Switch... So it will, and that that's where I'm excited to play this. That's going to be really fun to have on Switch. But I have never really dived into Diablo 2, Sean, and I've always wanted to give it a try, and I'm really happy they're doing this. This is so cool. Yeah, Diablo 2 is just an incredible game. So yeah, I'm very, I was very happy to see that trailer. Like it does have that like Halo anniversary thing to it where a lot of like the graphic effects and everything are really advanced, but because they're keeping the core gameplay the same like all the animations look super fucking janky which i kind of like i like that you can see it's like yeah no that's just the animations from diablo 2 basically um and yeah i i watched that trailer and i had i had like that big like nostalgia hit because i have not played diablo 2 in a long time i think the last time i played through that game was in high school so um yeah i'm really excited because diablo 2's one of those like just like all-time great like genre defining games like it is the the one that like pushed that like loot action rpg thing that diablo 1 kind of started i feel like diablo 2 was the one that kind of like perfected it and kind of defined what that genre was so awesome that they're they're giving that like the proper remake treatment and also i'm just super stoked to play it on console because that to me was the huge revelation of diablo 3 since i didn't play it on pc the only versions of that game i played was the console version i was like oh my god, Diablo is actually better on console. Like, it feels better to just directly control the character than to click and then have the character move there. Um, So I'm very excited to play that game that way because that has kind of become my preferred control method for that kind of game. Yeah, I mean, it's super fascinating when you read about, like, the history of Diablo 3, how much of what wound up working about that game came out of the little department that was figuring out how to do it on a controller. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And it feels like that's unlocked so much potential for Diablo for like all these new audiences and stuff. And of course, you can still play it on PC if you want, but very cool. So that's the Blizzard news. Diablo 2 Resurrected, I'm extremely excited for. All right, let's talk about the Nintendo Direct. The Nintendo Direct, um, did you watch this, Sean, or just look at the headlines? I just looked at the headlines, yeah. yeah. Like, I, I watched a couple of the trailers, um, and it, it, like, I guess my impression from the outside is that it seemed like there wasn't a huge amount of stuff that people were, like, super stoked about coming out of this. Like, um, I think the main stuff I heard about was the Smash Brothers stuff, a bunch of ports, and then uh, Skyward Sword, which I guess is another port, um, but, <laughs> and then Mario, the Mario Golf. Those yeah. were, like, the things that stood out to me of, like, oh, yeah, okay, that's a thing that was announced. 
Um, but it just didn't feel like for the first proper Nintendo Direct in a year, you know, it is that one of those still nothing about Bayonetta 3, still nothing about Metroid. And then they said the words Breath of the Wild 2 apparently, but but did not actually do anything with it. Yeah, I mean, I knew Miss. Well, we'll get to it when we get to it. Yeah. Um, I I thought this was a pretty bad Nintendo Direct. I'll be honest. I I think it was like there were a couple of marquee big things, and there were some really exciting things in this Nintendo Direct. Um, but the two most exciting things were announcements for games that are 2022 or beyond, and that was Splatoon three. And right. this new Square Enix game, Project Triangle Strategy, which we'll talk about in a second. But neither of those are this year. And the stuff that is this year, which mostly what they were showing was summer stuff, like Mario Golf and Skyward Sword, is like stuff I'm very happy to have, but not like a big revelation or anything. And so, and then the rest of the time was basically filled with these, what they call their headlines, which is where they just go through like, um, you know, rapid fire announcements and all of that stuff was... There were a couple of gems in there. There's one really cool thing that I think is coming out of that. But it, it was long and kind of slow, where Nintendo Directs usually are more focused. And I don't know. It, it felt like they did this because they felt like they needed to do it. It still feels to me like Nintendo maybe has had quite a bit of stuff like pushed back because of the pandemic. And because Nintendo is not like other companies and doesn't generally announce stuff until they're like ready to go on it... It's just like their pace of announcements has slowed as their pace of development has slowed. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then they have these like weird games, like I said, like Bayonetta 3 and Metroid Prime that have been, I mean, in development for for Bayonetta 3 since the like the announcement of the Switch and Metroid yes. Prime like shortly after. So yeah, it's like this weird thing where you have a couple of projects that have been silent for years and then like... Uh, then yeah you're right like they tend to wait until they're very close like i would not be surprised if breath of the wild 2 was something that came out this fall or at least was like planned to maybe like pandemic stuff might change that um but they're they probably don't want to sort of like do a deep dive on it until they're close enough to be sure when it's going to come out right and and that's the other thing is we have from this direct and everything else we have no idea about nintendo's plans past like june it is they said nothing about the fall and that probably means they're planning on an e3 time like big announcement and like they have to have some big marquee game this fall i would think it's breath of the wild 2 but we'll see um there's lots it could be obviously but let's go ahead and dive in uh the the this i did like how the show started it started with this scene from xenoblade chronicles 2 and it was the main character rex going around because pyra his his blade big boobs lady has disappeared mm -hmm. she's vanished he's looking for her and then he stumbles into smash brothers and that's where she has been which i thought was a fantastic like smash brothers fake out trailer is like making you think you're getting a xenoblade expansion and he's like the the big hook is pyra has disappeared and then the answer is she's in smash brothers um and and pyra is the new character for smash uh mithra i think as an alternate costume is also in the game she's one of the other blades and the stage for pyra and mithra is grand Ramps, who is your big like floating turtle dude in the sky um if you've played xenoblade 2 like the whole world is in the sky and and you live on this rex lives on this big like ancient floating turtle dude uh and that's the stage it's a very cool stage um so yeah i am not a huge xenoblade fan i have not played these games outside of a little bit of xenoblade chronicles 2 but pyra makes complete 100 sense as a character it is another anime swords person you know, your mileage may vary. Um, but I thought this was at the very least a fun announcement. 
Yeah, I do have to say, as someone, it, it, I have to stress, I have not played this game, so, like, I can't speak to anything about it specifically other than, like, footage I have seen. But I did, but it, there was a weird, because I watched the trailer, because I, I like to see the Smash Brothers trailers, because they're usually pretty good. But this was one where I was reminded that every time I see footage from Xenoblade Chronicles 2, at least, like, I've only ever seen stuff of the English dub, so this might be a dub thing. But it always comes across as so awkward feeling, like the voice acting and the pacing and the writing and all that. It just has this, like, really kind of cringy thing to it that I'm like, every time it comes up, I think part of it is like the weird sort of pseudo UK thing they went for that I don't feel like matches the aesthetic of Xenoblade Chronicles, which is not like a, like, medieval European fantasy type setting. So I don't know why they decided to make people British and Welsh. Um, it is just, I don't know, there's something about it that I watched that trailer, I'm like, they have really captured what this game feels like as someone who's only watched the trailers, because I get the same amount of, like, awkward, cringy feel watching this trailer as I did watching any of the trailers for the actual game. You know, I, I agree with that for the dub. I have played, like, six hours of Xenoblade Chronicles 2, and I played it in Japanese, and I, and I, that's, that, that quality is not there in Japanese, obviously. It's just a normal Japanese game but like I mean if you don't if you know the history of Xenoblade Chronicles the original game was first dubbed for the UK and Europe and it was this UK team and then they were gonna do an American dub the financing fell through they just released the UK dub over here and I feel like it and it became kind of a cult hit because of how weird that dub was and I do feel like the Xenoblade 2 dub like leaned into that in some like weird ways uh like too self-conscious about it but anyway, uh, again, I, I do not have formed opinions on this series. And I will say I have several students in my class this semester who are major Xenoblade fans who were very excited about this. So good for them. I do feel like maybe they missed their window slightly because Xenoblade uh -huh. 2 is like three years old now. But, you know, it's fine. It's, it's Pyra. Uh, all right. Then Shinya Takahashi was our host for this show. He said, hello, everyone. It's been a while. That was for sure true. We got our first batch of headlines. Uh, Fall Guys is coming to Nintendo Switch this summer. I am excited about that. Fall Guys is good. Fall Guys will be fun on Switch. Outer it was also coming to Xbox was part of that announcement. Obviously, they didn't say that in the direct, but that okay. like, came out on Twitter afterwards. So if you, okay. have, if you have an Xbox or a Switch and you have not played Fall Guys, you can play that now. Or you awesome. will be able to over the summer. Yeah, Fall Guys is very good. Everyone should... should Play that or watch it. It's it's a fun little game. Uh, Outer Wilds, which was your number two game of whatever year that was, Sean, is coming mm -hmm. to Switch. Two years ago. Two years ago. So that's on everything now. Uh, here was my favorite like little announcement. There are they called this two deep cuts from Nintendo history. It is the Famicom Detective Club games. These were sort of text-based detective games for the Famicom in Japan in 1989, I believe. Uh, never came outside of Japan, never translated officially in English, but they have gotten full remakes, and they look more like sort of modern visual novels with, you know, sort of anime-inspired art. Um, they have full voice acting, all of that. They will be both coming out on Nintendo Switch on May 14th. Um, and uh, if you they, they look more expensive than they are in the eShop because they're both $35, but if you buy one, you get the other one $10 off. So it's a $60 package overall, um, which maybe seems like a lot, but, but it looks like they've put a lot of work into these games. I would imagine like with the full voice acting, these are actually probably pretty sizable games. Uh, and these, uh, I just love the trend of getting Famicom games that were never translated out into the world, and this is a cool mm -hmm. way to do it. So I'm actually looking forward to this. Yeah. They should they should title the Western release the NES Detective Club. <laughs> Go full Nintendo Entertainment System Detective <laughs> yeah. Club. 
Yes. Uh, let's see. They showed Samurai Warriors 5. I don't know if that game's already out or not coming out just to support, but it's coming out in the summer. Um, they showed Legend of Mana is coming out with remastered HD graphics. This was a PS1 game. Um, so it's got some remastered graphics, but still sort of has its PS1 roots there. It's got new rearranged music alongside the original soundtrack. June 24th, I'm sure Mana fans are happy about that. Uh, and they did show off a little more Monster Hunter Rise that has been well announced and hyped. It's coming March 26th. There's a Deluxe Edition Monster Hunter Switch and a Deluxe Edition Pro Controller coming the same day, which looked pretty cool. Although I do have to note the... Um, Monster Hunter Deluxe Edition, like Nintendo Switch console, is the most nickel and diming shit I've ever seen because it's a special edition console, but instead of being the normal $300 Switch price, it's $370 because they're charging you for the game that is included <laughs> and the DLC. They're not giving you any part of it for free. You don't save a fucking dime buying that bundle, which I find kind of hilarious. That is very, very funny, yeah. Yeah, I do. I do have to say though, Sean, I might play this game because there's nothing else coming out around March 26th that I know of. I've always wanted to get into Monster Hunter because you've recommended World so much. From what I've heard, Rise is like a really nice middle ground between sort of the series's sort of handheld roots and, but it takes a lot of stuff from Monster Hunter World. It looks really good. Yeah, it does look very good. Yeah, and it does look like it has a lot of the Monster Hunter World improvements of like i think is one big contiguous world and in, in stuff like that yeah. instead of the old games had were like separated into distinct zones that you loaded into and stuff like that so yeah it, i've seen a couple of because they've done some like demos and stuff like that and i've watched some of that footage it looks very good yeah so that looks cool then they had their first big announcement which was mario golf we are getting mario golf super rush it looks like a fairly basic Mario Golf game, but totally solid. There is, I think this is cool, a new speed mode. It's called Speed Golf, where you have to physically race through the course against opponents. So, like, you tee off, you hit your ball, and then you have to go chase the ball. Um, so it sort of, like, adds this sort of party element. That's pretty great. I, I like that as a Mario Golf edition. I do have to say the title Mario Golf Super Rush sounds like it's a mobile game to me. Like when they when I saw the headline, I was like, oh, they're there. I forgot. I thought Nintendo was stopped doing the mobile game thing they were doing a while ago. And I was like, oh, no, this is actually just like a proper new Mario Golf game. Yes, and it is. And, and I will say Mario Golf to me has always been the best Mario sports title. Those are pretty good. And they're, they mm. actually are pretty few and far between. There's The last one was on 3DS. Um, the last one before that, I think, was GameCube. These are usually pretty good. This one will also have a story mode uh, with a me character that you create. Not sure what kind of story mode that will be. The story mode in Mario Tennis Aces was very bad. Maybe this will be better. Uh, either way, it is coming June 25th. I always enjoy some Mario Golf, so that is welcome. Uh, then we got into more headlines. Tales from the Borderlands, because apparently Telltale just won't die. That's being ported on March 24th. Uh, Capcom Arcade Stadium. We're getting 32 Capcom Arcade games. Yay. Um, they're doing a re-release of Stubbs the Zombie on March 16th. Uh, we're getting one, no more... No, I want to say one quick thing about Stubbs the Zombie. The old, like, or two things about that game. One, okay. the soundtrack for that game fucking ruled. It was a game that only ever came out on the original Xbox and I rented once. Um, that soundtrack fucking rules because it is basically remake, like, um, covers of classic 1950s songs because the whole game is set in, the, in 1950s America. Um, it's got some really good, uh, really, really good music. Uh, and then also it is like, at the time, it was marketed very heavily as being made in the Halo Combat Evolved engine because it, like some ex-Bungie people left after Halo 1. They formed a new studio and that's the game they made. And it is, so it is, 
It has almost no connection to Halo whatsoever, other than it is like the only other game made in that engine, basically. So there's well, your historical fact about Stubbs the Zombie in Rebel Without a Pulse. Nice. It, I mean, it looks good. I, people were very excited about this. Is it coming to other systems too, or is this just a Switch I thing? I think it's coming to basically everything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's nice. That's nice that this is getting ported. I might check it out. It looks fun. Uh, then we got our date for No More Heroes 3. Uh, which uh, the Travis touchdown game, this has been like teased and hyped for years, which I think it is kind of funny that it wound up as just a like throwaway headline here, but it's coming August 27th. That's the latest date for a switch game we have right now. Um, yeah, I don't really even know what no more heroes is. Um, we're getting a new Annapurna game, uh, neon white. It looked very cool. I thought that is a winter 2021 game. This will not be only on switch, obviously, um, but it does look... Uh, Annapurna's Interactive's games are generally pretty interesting, and this looks like it's an interesting one. Um, we got a... Uh, the most obnoxious preview at this whole show, Sean, was for DC Superhero Girls Teen Power, which is a DC game with, like, Supergirl, Batgirl, Harley Quinn, whoever else DC has, uh, Wonder Woman, but they're all, like, teen girls obsessed with going to the mall and shopping and doing makeup. Um... It was annoying and I thought weirdly sexist and infantilizing, but yeah, that was that was hard to sit through. Huh. I I'm I need to look at that trailer because I didn't even this was not a thing that even popped up on my radar. Now I'm curious just to see it. Yes. Uh some plants versus zombies thing. I don't give a shit. Uh Metopia. Metopia was a late three DS game that I do not remember the existence of, but it is now coming to Switch on May twenty first. Yay. Uh, and then we are getting Super Mario Brothers items for Animal Crossing New Horizons for the 35th anniversary of Mario. You'll have a Mario costume, a question block, coins, mushrooms, and functional warp pipes that will take you from one point on the island to another. That all comes February 25th, and I think that's actually a cool little update for Animal Crossing. I am excited to see what islands people will make with all that Mario stuff, because it's pretty extensive. And because the warp pipes actually work, I am sure someone is going to turn their island into like a fully functional World 1-1 or something, you know? Because mm -hmm. Nintendo fans do that. All right. Then we got, I think, maybe the most exciting announcement of the day, which was Project Triangle Strategy. Terrible title. It is a working title. But this is from the team that did Octopath Traveler, which I really liked. Um, and it is a similar art style. It is this 2D HD hybrid that they like to call it. Um, but so it's pixel art, but in kind of a 3D HD space. Uh, they do it in Unreal Engine. It's very cool. Um, but it is basically a Final Fantasy Tactics game. So it's got a Fire Emblem sort of style combat system for Nintendo fans. But if you've seen Final Fantasy Tactics, it's got that specific spin where there are these sort of um, levels of height that also play into it. Um, and they're also going to have the story have a ton of branching paths, big important decisions. Um, you have d the story changing depending on decisions you make. Um, it's, it's about a world with three nations feuding over salt and iron, they said, which ignite into the salt iron war, which I think is a great sentence. Um, but it looks really cool. There is a demo already out on the Nintendo Switch, even though this game is a year away. Um, but this team likes to do that. They did this for Octopath Traveler. They did it for Bravely Default 2, which is coming out soon. And now they're doing it for this. And these are genuine, like, alpha-style tests because they give you this, like, vertical slice and then they get fan feedback, and they do integrate that into the game, which I think is interesting. So it's a genuine, like, 
proof of concept kind of thing. Uh, I have not had a chance to try that demo yet, but I am excited to. This seems like a really cool thing and um, maybe a little more focused than Octopath Traveler, which I really loved, but did because of these eight stories that don't actually really ever come together, Octopath Traveler wound up feeling kind of diffuse by the end. Mm -hmm. um, this looks like it'll be a little more focused, and uh, but it looks like a really cool thing. And Final Fantasy Tactics style Square Enix games have been dormant for a very long time, so I think this is cool. Yeah, that is cool. Like, yeah, it, it's been a thing that people have clamored for for a long time is for them to make a new Final Fantasy Tactics. Um, so yeah, them doing it doesn't have to be Final Fantasy; it just has to be Tactics. I do think it's funny though. So Octopath Traveler was announced as Project Octopath Traveler, and then the final title was just Octopath Traveler. Mm -hmm. Do we think they're actually going to release a game called Triangle Strategy? <laughs> I hope so because that sounds like it's like a free mobile game <laughs> that is like a ripoff of another free mobile game that was actually good, but then here's like this really cheap ripoff that someone made, um, and because the iOS store like is you know a home of thieves and pirates they can just get away with it that's what triangle strategy sounds like to me it sounds like what the pack-in game would be on a zune in like 2006 yeah. uh-huh yeah <laughs> it's an engage game that you could play yes. um yeah all right then we had more headlines and i wrote in my notes oh my god this is interminable because just look at my outline most of this was just rapid fire headlines uh let's see there's a new star wars game coming star wars hunters it is a free-to-play game with star wars in it that felt uh, like that should have been a way bigger announcement than it was, because uh, I kept on seeing this, like, there's a new Star Wars game. I'm like, really? Like, it feels like that should be, like, a big announcement. And it's like, it's like some sort of, I mean, one, like, the trailer showed nothing. And it just says, it's like, it's a third-person shooter free-to-play game that's set between Episode 6 and Episode 7. I think that's all the information we know about it. And it's just like, really? It's like, you couldn't, you couldn't be bothered to, like put a little bit more gusto into announcing a new fucking Star Wars game. Yeah. Uh, there was a very obnoxious trailer for something called Knockout City coming in May. That trailer can fuck itself. It was loud. Uh, World's End Club is the new game from the creators of Ronpa. It sort of blends side-scrolling gameplay with visual novel stuff. Characters moving through a Japan where everyone has vanished. Looks kind of interesting. That is coming May 28th. Uh, Hades, Game of the Year 2020, is getting a physical release with a soundtrack download code. You can already stream that anywhere. You don't need that. Uh, and a 32-page color character compendium, March 19th. So if you have not played Hades and you were you, you needed a physical Switch cart to play it, there you go. Um, here's a fun announcement. This is coming to everything, not just Nintendo Switch, but there is a Ninja Gaiden Master Collection, which will collect the three 3D Ninja Gaiden games from the early 2000s, specifically the Sigma versions um and i know sean you really liked the original one on xbox and i've always wanted to play it so this is cool yeah no i'm i'm excited that they're re-releasing those because i've never played the sigma versions i've only ever played i mean i haven't i didn't even get ninja gaiden black which was the original re-release on the original xbox because they've re-released these games like a million times but they did all they released them a million times in the span of like five years and then they didn't release them again um so yeah so i played the original ninja gaiden on, on the original Xbox and then the original release of Ninja Gaiden 2 on the 360 and both of those games are fantastic um, and then it's everything I know about Ninja Gaiden 3 is that it's like god awful and then the Razor's Edge like re-release made it like barely tolerable so you know you're getting two <laughs> good games and then one game that's kind of like if you buy like a Devil May Cry collection there's just another game in there that if you want to play it you can but um, Ninja Gaiden 1 and 2 are, are all time great character action game classics so 
I will definitely, I haven't played those in a long time. I will definitely pick this up. Yeah, it looks cool. Uh, although I'll note, if you have an Xbox One, Ninja Gaiden Black and the 360 version of Ninja Gaiden 2, the non-Sigma version, are on backwards compatibility. And Ninja Gaiden Black, because it's original Xbox, has a you know 16x resolution boost to run in native 4K. So you can already play those in pretty good form there. But this will be a nice thing to have for other platforms. Uh, they announced a expansion pass for Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity. There will be... Uh, two waves of that in June and November with new characters and stuff. Um, they reminded us about Bravely Default 2, which is almost here. That is a game that I am waiting on reviews for, I will just say, because I'm mm -hmm. a huge fan of Bravely Default 1. I've played the demos for 2, and I'm not quite feeling it. So I am, I'm waiting to hear what people with similar tastes to me think about that game. Uh, they are doing a remaster of Ghosts and Goblins, or Ghosts and Goblins, on February 25th. Uh, there's a Saga Frontier Remastered coming April 15th. That is the Saga game from the PS1, I think. Uh, they did the collection of Saga uh, last year, the Game Boy games that came out as Final Fantasy Legends. So this is like right. the next step in that. Uh, and Apex Legends is coming to Switch March 9th. That has been teased for a while, but we are getting Apex Legends on Switch. And finally, uh, not finally actually, penultimately, Eiji Onuma was here. Will he save the show? Yes, sort of. Uh, so kind he of. says, <laughs> yeah, he says, you thought there'd be Breath of the Wild 2 news, but they don't have anything to share yet. Um, he does say they will share more information on Breath of the Wild 2 later this year. So they have planted that flag. We will hear more about this game later this year. He says development is going smoothly. I'm sure he wouldn't say anything else. He's not going to come out there and say, like, it's been rough, guys. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so we will hear more about Breath of the Wild later. But while we're waiting, we are getting Skyward Sword HD for its 10th anniversary, actually. That game was originally 2011. We are in 2021 now. Uh, Aonuma says the controls are actually even better on Switch. Uh, if you don't remember, Skyward Sword was the one that really went all in with the motion controls and had the Wii Motion Plus, which was the Wiimote that added gyro controls. Uh, and so you did all the sword play and sword controls with the Wiimote. Um, and, and the Joy-Con, that is one area where the Joy-Con are even better because their Joy-Con's pointer control are not as good because you do not have like a sensor on the TV but their gyro stuff is even better so he's probably right about that um, your right Joy-Con is your sword your left is your shield uh, but it is also now possible to play the games with button controls for handheld or for the Nintendo Switch Lite which does not have detachable controllers uh, the sword motions now use the right control stick if you are playing with buttons they will be releasing special Skyward Sword edition Joy-Cons which look really fucking cool I want those this is coming July 16th I have mixed feelings about this. On one level, I'm really glad they're doing this because I, Skyward Sword is the only 3D Zelda I've never played. I've always wanted to. And I went to play it on Wii like a year or two ago when I went through a phase and I did all the 3D Zelda games. And that game looks god-awful on modern TVs. Like, it, it, there's something about it. Like It's like the pinnacle of Nintendo refusing to use anti-aliasing. That game is like all jagged edges on an HD TV. It's like really harsh to look at. Um... The HD remaster obviously fixes that. I still don't think it's like the prettiest Zelda game from what they showed, but it looks much better and more playable and you won't have to get your old Wii out or anything like that. So this is very nice. I'm glad to have the game. But, but, mm -hmm. they just did Mario 3D All-Stars. And Mario yeah. 3D All-Stars was by no means perfect, but it was a nice little collection of Mario 64, Sunshine, and Galaxy in good form. They could have been in better form, especially the first two games, but they were in very good form. And it was very nice to have. They have 
HD remasters done for Wind Waker and Twilight Princess. They were done for Wii U. We know for a fact that it is not hard to port a Wii U game to Switch. They could have done, and this is Zelda's 35th anniversary. Same, Mario was 35 last year, Zelda is 35 this year. They could have done a Zelda 3D collection and given us for $60 Wind Waker, Twilight Princess, and Skyward Sword. And it would have blown everyone's minds and people would have been very happy and you would have felt like that's a great use of $60. Instead, we are getting a pretty basic port of Skyward Sword with no new content, pretty minimal, like, like good visual upgrades. It is totally competent, but it's nothing major. It is not even to the level of Wind Waker HD or Twilight Princess HD, which were pretty big overhauls in a lot of ways. And it's 60 bucks for this 10-year-old game. Um, I, I, I'm kind of blown away that they're not doing more with Zelda here. It's especially because those other two HD remakes are just sitting there. Like, they could put them out whenever the hell they want. Yeah, so there has been indication from, like, industry insiders that probably they are going to release those maybe sometime this year. Okay. Um, so, like, my suspicion is that they will. I think what's going to happen is I think they're going to release Wind Waker HD for $60. I think they're going to release Twilight Princess HD for $60. I think they're going to release Skyward Sword HD for $60 because that's how Nintendo rolls. Um, it, it is. I, I could see them doing Wind Waker and Twilight Princess in a pack for 60 But yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, so I have been slower to criticize Nintendo's porting prices than many, I think. Um, you know, all of their Wii U games are re-released at the full $60. And, you know, for some of those... Like, Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze sold nothing on the Wii U. I do, to a certain extent, get it is a new game to the vast majority of people buying it. Fuck it, we're going to sell this for 60 Even Mario 3D All-Stars, it's three games, whatever. I guess Skyward Sword is the one where I just kind of reached my breaking point seeing that and being like, what the fuck? That is just like, especially because, like, I mean, we have the Mass Effect Trilogy remaster coming out soon. That's mm -hmm. only 40 bucks. Yeah, that's Diablo from the 2. same time frame. That's, that series yeah. is about 10 years old as well now. Like, that 10 years yeah. ago is when Mass Effect 2 came out. You know, Diablo 2 Resurrected is coming out. That's at a $40 price point. There's just no excuse, especially with those other Zelda games sitting there. Uh, it's dumb. You know, there's just nothing else to say for, for that price. Like, the product itself might be fine, but that's too much to charge for this. Uh, stupid. Yeah, it, I, I find it kind of funny because it reminded me that, like, the last time I really thought about Skyward Sword was around the time I played Breath of the Wild by borrowing your Wii U. I was in a Zelda mood because I played Breath of the Wild and then I played replayed through Ocarina of Time. And I was like, oh, like, I kind of want to play something else. And I was like, looking around, I was like, oh, what other Zelda game could I play? And I was like, you know what? I could play Skyward Sword because I didn't use my Wii much, but I still have a Wii. I could just play that game. And at that at the time, that game was like eight, seven, eight years old, whatever it was. I was like, well, I should be able to get that game super cheap. And then I looked it up and was like, no, Nintendo is still officially selling this game packaged for 60 fucking dollars. And it's like, this was like three years ago, three or four years ago. And I was like, that's mad. I had just forgotten that that's like something that Nintendo just does. Like they don't reduce their games in price. Um, no. They will charge like as much as they can for 
yeah, like, what is for this, like, the Skyward Sword HD, like, looking at the trailer, seems like a pretty simple remaster. Because I was actually shocked at how, like, I thought it didn't look very good. Because in my head, Skyward Sword, when it came out, at least had a really good-looking art style, even if, because it was on the Wii, the resolution and all that shit was bad. Um, but now, looking at them, like, I don't know if it's just because they haven't done enough to clean it up, or it's, like, maybe, like, my memory of, like, that art style, using, like, looking good ten years ago... Maybe that's just wrong because like like if I looked at that game, I was like, this just looks bad. Like the colors are really drab and sort of like washed out looking. Like it's just doesn't have this in my head. I remember thinking I heard that Skyward Sword when it came out wasn't good. Like a lot of people didn't like it that much because it was like very slow or whatever at the beginning. So I never played it. Um, I remember watching trailers of it and thinking, well, at least this game looks fucking cool. It's got a cool looking art style. It's going for a very different look than other Zelda games. And now looking at them, just like, man, like. Twilight Princess and Wind Waker HD look a million times better than what they showed in that trailer. I agree, and I don't know, because I've never played it in full. I've seen my brother playing it. I'm familiar with this game. I think part of it is that it was very proto-Breath of the Wild trying to do this cel-shading mm-hmm. thing. Um, like, I should say, Wind Waker is cel-shaded, but like this cel-shading with a more like fleshed-out 3D style. And, like, just once you have Breath of the Wild, you go back and look at this, and it, it does, like, I agree, it looks kind of washed out and bad. And, and we'll see. The full version might look better. Um, I don't know. They were showing the early game, too. I don't know if it's there's stuff later in the game. You know, there are people who think this is a phenomenal Zelda game. There's some who find it too hand-holdy. Um, I am excited to try it for myself, and I will be a, you know, idiot and pay the 60 bucks for it. Although it is funny. If you don't mind the Wii version and you have a Wii U... You can buy the Wii version on Wii U digitally for $20 right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> there you go. There you go. And the last announcement was Splatoon 3, which started uh, out in the desert. It's kind of a post-apocalyptic wasteland, and we got our Squid Kid. Uh, they did some character creation as the Squid Kid sat in the sand. Then we got our Little Buddy, which is a new character in Splatoon. And then we were off to explore. They got on a train. Uh, then they went through the desert, and then they were in a new city, and we learned about Splatoon 3. It's not coming until 2022. We didn't learn that many details. I do wonder, though, if this game is going to have like an expanded like single-player component, because Splatoon 2 had a really good single-player mode, and then it had the Octo expansion, which was a whole new single-player campaign that was phenomenal. Just a great adventure platformer and this kind of teased at this like big desert world and i wonder if we're going to get more of that um in addition to all of the like classic multiplayer gameplay they did show a new weapon type we're going to have a ink bow but splatoon 2 was great splatoon 2 had a lot of great post-launch support it's gone quiet lately because they've been making splatoon 3 but i am very glad that this is an active franchise for nintendo because splatoon fucking rocks and is one of the coolest things nintendo's done in the last decade so very happy about this yeah, I, I am also very happy that Splatoon is ongoing just because it is, like, it's one of the most interesting things Nintendo has done in years in terms of, like, like not just doing here's, you know, their Mario games and Zelda games and that stuff are good, but they are still Mario and Zelda games, so it's, like, it's nice to have, like, at least this one thing, you know, if ARMS had been good, maybe there would have been two things, but there is at least this <laughs> one thing with Splatoon that's, like, that feels, like, fresh and new. Um, I do think it's interesting that... You know, it, it feels like the rest of the game industry has moved into this position where, like, if you launch a multiplayer-only or multiplayer primary game, um, most things that aren't, like, ongoing franchises like a Call of Duty just release that one game and then they just support it forever, right? Like, Rainbow Six Siege is, what, going on, like, six years or something at this point 
of just ongoing support. I find it interesting. Like, there's, there was something about when they announced Splatoon 3 that was like, oh, right, you can just make new games that are multiplayer games. Like, you don't have to... Like, that. Like that is a legitimate strategy for that kind of game. It doesn't just have to be the, we're releasing the one game and then hope it hits. And then if it hits, we are just keeping it on this one game for, like, 10 years or however long we can keep it going for it. There's something almost refreshing about the, like, no, it's just a, it's just going to be a multiplayer focused game and it can just be a new video game. Yeah. I am. I am a fan of that. Looks good. So yeah, not the most exciting Nintendo direct. A couple things I'm looking forward to. I really do hope we get more Zelda news because if all they do for the 35th anniversary is this pretty straight port of Skyward Sword, that would suck. Uh, at the very least, I hope we get... Because the thing about the Wind Waker and Twilight Princess ones is just because they're done and they're there is why it's mm -hmm. frustrating, right? Um, it would be nice to do, like, if they could do something like with Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask and, like, make HD versions of the 3DS remakes. But that would take a lot of work. So I, I understand why that is not something that I would just, like, demand right now. Uh, I would maybe demand that we get some fucking N64 emulation on this thing. But, you know, whatever. Nintendo gonna Nintendo. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I hope there is a little more Zelda stuff later this year because they, I don't think they did a perfect job on Mario's 35th anniversary, but yeah, we got some good stuff. So we'll have to see. Yep. All right. Well, Sean, I think that wraps it up for today. Do you want to go ahead and move on over to some Gundam? Yes. Let us talk about, uh, finally, Jonathan, some more goddamn Mobile Suit Gundam. Hello and welcome to Weekly Suit Gundam, the special bonus podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I am Sean Chapman. And I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here once again to dive into the wacky and wild world of Mobile Suit Gundam to take a look at a blast from the past, Jonathan, because we are going back to Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam. But we're not, not watching the TV show again. We are watching a trilogy of movies released in 2005 and 2006 that repackages the 50-episode TV show into three 90-minute movies called collectively Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam, A New Translation. Yes, uh, which it is technically in the chronology, chronology we're doing because this was right after uh, Mobile Suit Gundam Seed Destiny and before Gundam Double Zero. This is the first time Yoshiyuki Tomino returns to the franchise after Turn A Gundam, and he won't do anything with it again until G-Reco, right? Like 10 years later. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, yeah, so we're we're back in in Tomino's Playhouse. Yes, obviously uh, Gundam has a storied history with these kind of movies because it was the three uh, original Gundam movies in 1981 and 1982, which we reviewed on I think it's episode six of Weekly Suit Gundam, mm -hmm. uh, that really brought the series to massive like national popularity within Japan and is a big moment in the history of anime. So Tomino going back 20 years later and doing the same sort of thing for Zeta Gundam. Uh, is an enticing proposition. And I know these have been kind of a curiosity for us, Sean, and something we've wanted to talk about. So now, since we are at the point in the series' lifespan where these came out, now seemed like the right time. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is interesting because this is one of the rare times where uh, we are watching something that this is the first time I have properly watched these movies um, because I never really kind of spent the time to sit down and watch them because, like I said, they are... Um, effectively, it's just Zeta Gundam recut and re-edited for three movies with new footage made 
Um, a lot of the new footage is made mostly to sort of like make coverage for scenes and changes and things to compress the time. Although as the movies go on, they spend a little bit more just being like, ah, let's just make this look cool. So let's reanimate it. Um, but it is the core story is more or less Zeta Gundam with the exception of one like very major change they make right at the very end. Um, so I never really spent the time to watch it since it wasn't a new story, but I did um, several years ago uh, watch just out of curiosity a bunch of the new footage and watched like the ending of the third movie and stuff like that. So I knew what these movies were. I had some experience with them, but but uh, the last couple of days is the first time I actually sat down and watched them properly and like kind of consumed all of the new scenes and new footage in their context. Yes, and you know obviously recap movies are not rare in Gundam. Most Gundam series have some kind of recap movie, whether it's the full thing or if it's something like Miller's Report for 8th MS Team, which is was the series like up to that point uh, for like an anime festival, and then but there were more episodes to do. So there's a lot of these, and, and for the most part we're not talking about those, because for the most part they are not r historically remarkable. We did talk about the three movies for original Gundam, because those are historically very remarkable, and as we found when we watched them, they're extremely good. I mean, they're just, mm -hmm. they stand on their own. They're fantastic. I think you and I would both still say that the TV series is the best overall version of that. But the movies are very, very good. They stand on their own just fine. I would be happy if someone was like, I in no way will watch 43 episodes of anime. I would be like, well, then watch three movies. They would work that way. I've seen them several times. I think they're great. And so I was really... I've been very curious. I've been I've been kind of holding off. I've been wanting to watch these, but holding off until we did a podcast on it, so I could go in fresh. Um, because I'm really curious what Tomino would do with Zeta, which is a much harder task. And I think that's where yeah. we kind of have to start. Is you know OG Gundam doing three movies? Well, that's tough. It's a big, complicated story, but it's 43 episodes. He had two and a half hours for each movie. Those are long movies, the original Gundam movies. Yeah. Um, and, you know, original Gundam also has sort of enough of an episodic structure that one of the big strategies Tomino and company employed on those movies is that they cut out a lot of individual episodes and where they kept stuff in, they would tend to keep in the bulk of full episodes. So you were seeing stuff largely in its proper context. It was pretty rare that they would like drastically have to cut something down you know like coming home is just coming home the whole episode yeah. is in there and some of it is recontextualized and there's some new animation but it's there uh and of course it also had the benefits of especially in that third movie some just spectacular new animation and because it was made roughly contemporaneously with the show it all blends together very well too it's hard to spot the seams zeta gundam has a tougher job yeah zeta gundam is 50 episodes it is a vastly more complicated story because it is not a simple, here's one side, here's another side, one side is Space Hitler, the other side isn't perfect, but there are heroes. Um, Zeta Gundam is multiple factions. There's a lot of politics going on. There are dozens of characters, most of whom die. Um, you have a new protagonist in Camille, but you also have returning characters from the original cast. You have a million things going on and the Zeta Gundam movies are between 90 and 100 minutes, not 140 minutes. So, uh, and, and, when they do new animation, they are doing it in 2005, not in 1985. So there are a lot of challenges on Yoshiyuki Tomino's plate in doing a new translation. Um, 
And I was so fascinated to see how he would do this. And for me, I'm kind of glad I watched it now because it's been enough time since I've seen Zeta Gundam and I've only seen it once. I felt like I got to go in with pretty fresh eyes. Um, you know the story of Zeta better because you've seen it at least twice. Have you seen it three times? I've seen it three times, yeah. Yeah. So so I'm curious what your thoughts are. But but yeah, so I think that, that sets the stage well enough <laughs> for th- this crazy task Yoshiyuki Tomino set himself. Yeah, so do you do you want to do uh, like first impressions, or do you want to jump into the history of how these movies came about first? Let's do first impressions. Um, I'll start. I, I usually start, even though this time we're both new to it. Um, yep. Uh, Yoshiki Tomino is a magician. Um, these are not perfect. They do not work entirely. They work though. Given everything I just said, I think these movies work so much better than they have any right to. I found them extremely riveting. I was glued to my seat for every minute of all three movies. I think they leverage a lot of what is great about Zeta Gundam. I think I have one giant asterisk with them, and that giant asterisk is the ending, and we will get to that. But um, I was very entertained and impressed. I don't think they are as good as the Mobile Suit Gundam original movies. In some ways, though, I'm even more impressed at Tomino's skills in doing an insane amount of narrative in a compressed amount of time. He is a fucking magician. Yeah, I, I think in many ways my impressions are not that different other than that I didn't enjoy them that much. Other than the third movie. Yeah. I liked the third movie quite, quite a bit, mostly because the third movie has the cleanest job in terms of what it can cut out. And so the third movie just feels like you are fucking shooting the last like 10 episodes of Zeta Gundam into your goddamn veins. And that was kind of great. Um, because the it just I like the whole time I watched the third movie I was just like kept on exclaiming the fucking the ending of Zeta Gundam is so fucking good yes. and then they you know they ruin like the last beat but everything up to that moment is the exact same which is kind of why the last beat doesn't work um, but I think the first movie I think the first like forty minutes in particular the first movie I just found like mostly just kind of delirious like it is so it, it has such a hard job trying to set up. Like, like it does, I think, an okay job at setting up Camille. I think the rest of what is happening just, like, zooms by in that movie. Um, and it's the kind of thing where I suspect if you had no background in... And actually, I don't have to suspect because I did, like, read a lot of reviews from when these movies came out. If you had basically no background in Zeta Gundam... Like, say you watched, you know what Mobile Suit Gundam is, so you're not confused about what a Char is and that kind of stuff. Um, but you'd never actually watched the Zeta Gundam itself... I think that first movie would be largely incomprehensible until about the midpoint. Um, And I think the second movie has a lot of good stuff, but I think that's also where you feel how much is lost by large sections having to be cut out and like some stuff that is left in, like all the stuff with Sarah in Armstrong Plaza feels like it's there because it needs to be, but it is not like the most interesting stuff to like be in a Zeta story. Um, So I think those two movies, they are a thousand times better than they have any right to be. They should be utter trash fires, and they're not. Like, I do think there's lots of good stuff. Some of the new scenes are quite good. I think there are, like, flashes of, like, brilliance at, like, where compressing things down juxtaposes some stuff and sort of pushes some things to the front line um, that is, like, more in the background of the TV show because there's so much other material that it's working through. I think moments like that really shine. Like, I think the ending of the first movie is fantastic. There's some stuff in the second movie that's great. But I I found a lot of it feeling like... In those first two movies, there's maybe about, like, 30 distinct scenes that are just 
mobile suits launching. Not like 30 shots, 30 different scenes of mobile shoot suits launching from their base or their cruiser because it is so many fight scenes stacked on top of each other because the plot can't be compressed to make them one big fight scene. So like that kind of stuff, I think the movie just struggles so hard with trying to find a way to work with what it can without just completely redoing it because they don't have the budget or time to totally reanimate the movies. Um, so I think like it is a thing where the movies are way better than they should be. But I did find the first two movies pretty tedious for long stretches of them. Yeah, so it sounds like this is going to be a difference of like degrees, not, you know, entire like uh, conclusions. Because yeah. um, I don't disagree with a lot of what you're saying. But at the same time, I just, you know, I'm someone who thinks very structurally about film and narrative and, and analytically in this kind of academic sense. And just everything you said is true. And I do think one of the the weaknesses is... Like, this was a slight weakness in the original Gundam movies, but it's something actually they were very, they were pretty able to overcome in terms of combining fight scenes and feeling like climaxes happened in the proper places. Whereas in the Zeta Gundam movies, as you say, there are just a million action scenes, you know? Um, and sometimes you'll get the Gundams, like, taking off, and then they'll have to, like, excise the action scene, <laughs> and then you'll come back mm -hmm. to them, like, landing, and then they'll take off again. Uh, but at the same time, you can just feel how thoughtful Tomino and company are being behind the scenes of it's it's not just how much footage can we fit in these 95 minutes I do feel like actual thought and care has gone into with the limitations they have in front of them what is movie one what is the arc why do we start here and why do we end here what are roughly the three acts of this thing you know what is Camille's journey from this point to this point who is the person we're mainly following and like I think they do a pretty good job centering Camille in all of this because one thing I was worried about is that if you're just doing the highlights does Camille kind of get lost in the shuffle and he I actually think the character who gets lost in the shuffle a little bit is Char um, oh yeah definitely be, because he's you really when he's he's just sort of purely plot functional in these um but, but, you know, it's not his story. So I also think that's like, if you have to make the sacrifice, that's probably where I do it too if you made me make three 90 minutes movies out of Zeta Gundam. So I don't know. I, I just, there is something, it's, so, so there is a, uh, an article by Hayao Miyazaki in his book, Starting Point. Um, and it's, I think it's from the, it's, it's an introduction he wrote to Akira Kurosawa's Ikiru when it came out on Laserdisc in Japan. And he wrote, he makes this comparison that I think about all the fucking time, where Miyazaki compares, he says, a good movie or a good work of art, a good TV show, he, he compares it to, and I forget the name of it, but it's a kind of Japanese rolled candy, it's kind of like a Tootsie Roll in America, where it's like a long, like, rolled up kind of thing of candy, and you split it into pieces, and he says, and the thing about a good movie is, it's like one of those. If you split it into pieces and you just take one piece out, it is still that thing. It is still just as tasty. And what he's saying is that he sometimes likes to sit down and watch Kurosawa's movies in little chunks. And then he'll turn it off because he's like, that was too sweet for me. I've gotten what I needed. But I like that theory of like, if you, it's kind of like if you put good in, you get good out. And there is something just like the sheer virtuosity of Zeta Gundam as like a production and it's action choreography and it's voice acting and it's, and it's storytelling. This is not the definitive way to experience this thing. I will never say that. You should watch the TV series. But it is striking to me how much of the brilliance comes through relatively undiluted. I, I, I found it oftentimes pretty breathtaking um 
And and maybe it's because I've only seen the TV series once, and I just am jonesing for some more Zeta Gundam, and it felt fresher to me that way. Um, but I was really struck by these these films, and and I, I know we're still on first impressions, so we can get into all, detail on all of this later. But yeah, yeah, I think it is just a. I think like the movies are very fascinating from like a theoretical point of view for me. Like I think because I agree, I think there is like so much thoughtfulness that goes into what do we do to efficiently manage to convey as much of the plot the themes the ideas and as much as we can the characters like the character stuff is what gets like the most hurt like char and amro's like most of their character stuff gets jettisoned like for i think it gets kind of turned almost into a slightly different character so it's like some of that stuff gets really harmed if you're if you have an attachment to the original but like with this impossible project of taking a very, very convoluted... Like, there are a few anime that are, like, good and this convoluted as Zeta Gundam. And taking that 50 episodes, compressing that into three 90-minute movies, um, which is a much, 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 much harder task than they had with the original trilogy of Mobile Suit Gundam films, as you outlined earlier. Um, that that for them to be able to do it and then, like, have it work as well as it does. And, and like you said, like, it gets most of the gist across like there are like major elements of zeta that i think the first two movies kind of miss um that that hurt them a lot but the third movie being as effective as it was can only be true if the first two movies were doing enough of their job in setting it up and kind of like building up those themes within the accelerated version of the story that the movies present so so like i do think the movies are like fairly successful in many ways even if ultimately I, I didn't necessarily like enjoy them as a film viewing experience, I enjoyed them as like an intellectual thought process on the structure of storytelling, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. So like like I, I always just say like to end our first impressions, if you are a Zeta Gundam fan, you should watch these. They're really fascinating. Mm -hmm. I, I, I would highly recommend taking the four or five hours that it takes to go through these and watch them because it's a really interesting experiment um and you know i i and i also think it's interesting also just to see where tomino has made changes and and how he is a different artist in 2005 than he was in 1985 some of those moments that we're going to get into um they're very worth watching if you have seen zeta gundam i i didn't want to make that yeah. clear <laughs> if you have not seen zeta gundam these movies will not work for you like i just don't Probably think not. you can you, i don't think you can have the context to like kind of understand what they're doing for large stretches yeah and I mean, you know, with that in mind, we should also say, like, the recap movie is a distinct phenomenon in Japanese anime, and it's frankly a distinct phenomenon in Japan in Japanese anime, because mostly the recap animes don't get distributed overseas, they don't get mm -hmm. seen, the international fandom doesn't really engage with them, a lot of them never even get home video releases, like, you know, and, and I would say these are not recap movies, these are a step above a recap movie, they are much yeah. more produced, but, like, you know... I do not think the expectation by Tomino in making these movies, unless you have evidence that count contradicts this, Sean, is that the main audience will be people who have never heard of Camille Bidon before. You know, like, I, I don't mm -hmm. tend to think that the main goal is like, I'm going to do this story for a bunch of people who have never seen Zeta Gundam. You know, because part of the fun of when you do these recap movies in theaters is going to the theater and, and for, for like recap style ass recap movies that are just clip shows. It's going and seeing the animation on the big screen and having fun with it that way. Um, this is, like we said, it's a step above that. It's a more produced thing. But the tradition of, like, the faster-paced movie cut-down version of this anime is not something, like, 
so alien to a Japanese anime watching audience that like it would kill the experience in the way like if you just gave these cold to someone in America that'd be crazy but that just that person doesn't exist in the same way in the Japanese fandom I would say um so yeah yeah so let's jump into the the sort of the history of how these movies came about so really the history of these movies starts in the 90s because in the 90s Tomino got an offer more or less from Sunrise to say like hey those you know those the Mobile Suit Gundam original trilogy of movies did fucking they did great at the box office right the third movie was like the fourth highest grossing movie in the domestic box office in Japan the year it came out so it's like those movies did incredibly well they're like hey let's do Zeta people like Zeta it had been like 10 years or something when this offer came up and from what I can tell, based on interviews with Tomino, like he had sort of like with some people, they they kind of like brainstormed the project a little bit. I believe the subtitles for the first two movies um, came from that and are unchanged. And the third one, they had changed um, the original subtitle. Of the third movie was different, but like a lot of like the sort of thought process kind of got started around that project, and then he just kind of ultimately decided not to go forward with it, um, and so then that went on hold. And then about ten years after that for what what was announced during the 25th anniversary of Gundam, which was 2004, and then to be released on the 20th anniversary of Zeta Gundam, which is 2005, they, they decided, let's go forward, let's make this trilogy of Zeta Gundam movies. Um, there is like, with the original project, there were, they were originally kind of scoping it to be maybe more like split between three movies, or they kind of thought to do two movies. For this, they're like, let's do three movies, about 90 minutes, and that's where they started coming up with let's do new animation um let's let's do what do what you can to make the animation blend as much as possible but don't compromise the cinematic animation for 2005 so it's like they went through this like whole kind of thought process on how to try to do this and for tomino a big motivation for him was um one to just kind of like look back on zeta which is one of his more beloved series that he had done and he specifically wanted to like do a new translation of it right that that word like that phrase a new translation that is not the like english localized version of these movies or something that is in the original japanese release that is what they are called and so the idea was to translate it forward both to update the story to be something that can, is consumable by a modern audience with like the newer animation stuff that they put into it but then also for tomino to look at that story that when he was a creator in the 80s and the 90s so much of his ethos um, and like the late 70s, like even the shit he did before Mobile Suit Gundam is grim. Um, like a lot of his like instincts as a storyteller were fairly grim to go pretty dark. And that is where you eventually get, you know, everybody's beloved name for him, Kill Him All Tomino, because dude likes to kill his fucking characters off, right? Um, and so he had that reputation for a long time. And then in the late 90s, and this is kind of something we talk around Turn A Gundam with, is he shifts more as a creator. And also, like, I think it is unfair to only characterize his older works as being, like, grim or dark or whatever, because he does have stuff like Double Zeta that is more um, uplifting, and he kind of would trade it off. But definitely his instincts around Turn A Gundam and Forward um, are to be more hopeful and more positive in his storytelling. So that's part of the point of these new translation movies, is to say, let's take the story of Zeta Gundam and turn it into... The word they keep on using, the best translation I can figure for in English, is to like make it a like healthy, vigorous story that ends with hope. Um, and that is not just like what the internal like thought process was. That is also how these movies were explicitly advertised. It was well known 
by the time of the release of the first movie that the ending of the third movie would be something that would be different than what you saw on the TV show and probably would be a happy ending. Um, like I read a number of different uh, movie reviews that were released around when the movies actually came out. Um, because like with the Seed and Seed Destiny, we are now at the point where you can kind of like find stuff easier on the internet from the period when the stuff was released for me to read. Um, and overall, like the movie, the reviews for these movies were very mixed. Um, like I, not a lot of people were like super positive about them. Um, some people hated them. A lot of people like saw them as kind of interesting, but didn't necessarily love them. Um, but, but in most of their views, I saw lots of comments about people talking about even when they were reviewing the first movie in 2005, that's like wondering about what is the ending going to be like? Like, what is the happy ending? Like the, um, the tagline for the third movie, like there were a couple of taglines it had, all of them like intimating something about a different conclusion to Zeta Gundam. Like who will, like, will, will they be able to find the warmth in space? Is there someone who, who will save us? Um, like they kind of marketed it around this idea of the ending will be different. Uh, which I think then when you actually see how they executed it, it is very disappointing how the ending is different. Um, but but that was sort of the thought process, was to take this more bleak kind of work um, and for Tomina to revisit it, repackage it together, do all this new work animating it. It is an inch of the staff on the project is an interesting mix of people who were working on the Gundam stuff in the 80s, some like Zeta, some of the other stuff in the 80s, um, and then lots of new people who are working at Sunrise um, coming to it as well. Um, and so, yeah, like that's basically how the movies come about. They release, uh, like the first movie releases May, 2005, the second movie, October, 2005, the third movie, uh, March, 2006. And one thing I think is interesting, you can kind of see where like the public interest in the movie starts to wane because the first movie makes, um, basically 860 million yen at the box office. The second movie makes 600 million yen, the third movie makes uh, 490 million yen, um, so which is like a th way, way better than a normal recap movie. Like the like the Turn A Gundam recap movies collectively made about like 1. 150 million yen. So like normal recap movies do not make do like gangbusters at the box office. Um, so these movies did like way better than a normal recap movie, but also by the time you're getting 490 million, 490 million yen, Converting like yen into dollars, I don't want to do it because it's like too much on my brain. Um, but 490 million yen in the box office, that's also not great for these movies either. Um, for like the amount of extra effort they went into to reanimate about like 60% of that movie. Um, so yeah, so like I think the public reception to it is was like fairly mixed um, when it came out, I guess, uh, was something yeah. I, I noticed when I was doing my research. Yeah, and, and obviously if you hold it up to the box office of the original trilogy movies i mean that those were genuine sensations I, I don't have the data in front of me and you would have to adjust for time but like it was you know this is this is not in that exact same like hit legacy but yeah i mean and i do wonder like how an audience that was coming up on like gundam seed and seed destiny would react to zeta because this is still it's changed but it is still zeta at heart and it is just a very different thing like um, you know, and, and it is kind of funny to juxtapose this with Seed Destiny because even in truncated form, this is still a much, much better sequel than Seed Destiny is. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. I mean, you know, I have my problems with these movies, but like, it's still Zeta Gundam. So, yeah. yes, it's still a lot better of a sequel than fucking Seed Destiny is. Yeah, so interesting. Um, well, where do you want to start with talking about the movies themselves? 
let's start with the beginning let's just talk about the first movie um yeah. let's talk about that opening act of that first movie because there's a lot of shit that they need to compress um, yes. to onboard aid an audience into zeta gundam so so the first movie is called heirs to the stars i do love the titles of these movies i think they're mm-hmm. very good so the first movie is heirs to the stars and yes um i so i did not have as many problems as you did with the opening of the movie but i mean let's just go through the numbers here when we reviewed Zeta Gundam back in the day, back in the day, like two years ago on this show, it was like episode seven or something, uh, mm-hmm. our Zeta Gundam review, I noted that I felt like I had, I, I sat down and watched the first five episodes in a run. And I basically, what I, I didn't plan that, I didn't look up where should I watch to, it was just I started watching and I kept watching until I felt like I had some kind of handle on what this show was doing. And in OG Gundam, that's two episodes. The first two onboard you perfectly even the first one you could argue but like those first two you have things in place i think for zeta gundam you could argue it's even more than five but the fifth episode is where camille's dad dies after his mom has died and like the argama is away from danger for a little bit so those first five feel like that and that's what the first 40 minutes of this movie are so like and if you go back to the original gundam movies so the gundam the first gundam film in 1981 it does the first two episodes of Gundam mostly intact with very few cuts and some changes here and some new animation. Um, but mostly it is just the first 40 minutes or those first two episodes. Zeta Gundam has to do five. And in those five episodes, you are introducing Camille, you are introducing Emma Sheen, you are introducing Quattro Bagina, who we already know because it's Shuichi Keda, but he's in a very new situation. You've got Captain Bright around the edges. You've got the Titans and you have Jared Hyman, Hymim, Hy- no, his name is not Hyman. It's Hyme. What is his last name? Jared. Jared. Jared's last name is Mesa. You're thinking of oh. Hyman Jamatov. Jamatov. Sorry. Sorry. You also meet him, though. Um, yes. You meet Basque Om. You meet yep. Camille's parents. You meet Fa Yuri. Yep. Um, yeah. So you have a lot. And, you know, you meet a lot of characters in the beginning of regular Gundam, too. But, uh, again,. Two episodes, not five. So, yes, it is It is wild. I mean, this, this like, to the degree that this introduces Camille in a different place than the show does. Which is not true at all of Amuro in, in the Gundam movies. Yeah, so, yeah. Like, I think part of what makes the, the opening 30 minutes to me, or the 30 to 40 minutes, is, like, incomprehensible is, is too much. But it's, like, it is, it is too much for its own good. Um is like there are, and this is something that I think is most obvious in the opening of the first movie, but it is true throughout all three of these movies. Like there are like sometimes just like really blatant continuity errors that exist because of the blending of new footage, old footage, stuff like that. Like there are shots where Camille is totally fine and they'll cut to his POV and they'll cut back to him. And all of a sudden he's covered in bruises because it is taken literally from a different episode. Um, And there's like, there are moments like that that are sprinkled throughout um, the opening there's like things like Camille knows Emma Sheen and Captain Bright's names without ever having learned that information on screen in a way that is like very like disorienting and there's a lot of stuff like that in that opening section where small little pieces of information are sort of excised because it needs to move at such a fast pace that like I feel like it is occasionally disorienting where you're not sure is this something that they're going to you know because some of that stuff like with Jared they then cover in a flashback type structure. Um, but some of this just like you, you are waiting to know, is this something that they're going to present more information about, or are they just going to move forward with like what feels like a vague continuity error introduced by using some of the existing dialogue, um, like lines of dialogue, all the voice acting is re-recorded. Um, but using some like the existing script, 
um, but having changed the editing. And there are like lots of weird inconsistencies like that sprinkled throughout that first 30 minutes or so um, that I find like took me out of the movie a lot in the the opening of the first one. Yeah, I didn't notice the visual um, discontinuities as much because I feel like I was just so locked into like trying to keep up with it. I mean, it is fast, and I agree. I think the first half of the first movie is probably the roughest stretch. I think I think the second half of the first movie is so strong, it kind of made up, it kind of rebounds for me in a way where I, I did feel like I came out of that movie on such a high. But yes, I mean, it's so I have mixed feelings about this, because some of the moves I think are very canny, and some of them I think are very ill-advised, and some of them I think are kind of in the middle. So like... Where Camille is introduced in this, in the original Zeta Gundam, we meet him with Fa, very much like Amuro. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's sort of that start of him in his milieu with his girlfriend, who's not his girlfriend, that sort of thing, right? And then he meets Jared, and he gets mad, and he punches him in his smug Nazi face. That's great. Um, in this movie, all of that is cut, and we meet him in the prison, or not the prison, but like the interrogation room, where one of the Titans is like drilling him. And... On one level, I find that kind of canny because it is a striking introduction. And what it allows is it's that kind of like cop movie introduction where the interrogator is like reading his rap sheet. So as a character introduction, it works fine. But the problem is that then so much of Camille's actions past that point do rely on him having this beef with Jared. And they have to like be like oh that's the guy I punched but you didn't see him get punched and then later they do show the punch in a brief flashback but without the context and it's a little whiplashy where like I would have tried to edit it in such a way to de-emphasize his relationship with Jared because I think it could work if you did that but uh, without reanimating way more than they did I don't know if that's possible so there's just a lot there um, in terms of having to figure all of that out yeah, because it does, I think, like, the difficulty it has is, and this is, like, true of all three of these movies, is that Zeta Gundam as a series is one that requires the viewer to, like, pay the utmost attention, Um, particularly once you get, like, way further into it, like, the ending stretch. You have to, like, be really sort of, like, reading between the lines of lots of scenes and character dialogue and things like that. And big moments and big character dynamics can be expressed in very small fleeting things that if you're not really paying attention it kind of zooms by you and that's like one of the reasons why i think zeta gundam is of all the gundam shows i think the one i enjoyed the most on rewatch or like my impression of it improved the most on rewatching it because like when you go in with that foreknowledge you can absorb that information a lot better the thing that that then causes though is that if you need to compress it um, it becomes really difficult to find those ways to express some of those character ideas. And one of those is with Camille's, like, stealing of the Gundam Mark II at the beginning of Zeta Gundam. Like, it is a really drastic move the character makes that you have very little context for understanding why he is doing that. I think that's one of the things that I overall think the idea of starting with the interrogation is really cool. But the problem is that then that immediately leads into the way that they've edited it him stealing the Gundam and that's so sudden of a transition from you being introduced to this character and then about five minutes later he is stealing this mobile suit um and and it's you know it's very different than Amuro like Amuro can get into the mobile suit very quickly because I mean one he doesn't even get in that quickly in that movie but he can get in quickly because he's under threat and he's trying to protect himself with Camille it is this proactive decision he makes to spite people by stealing the Gundam 
And I feel like you need a more gradual setup to make that character choice register more cleanly for the audience. And I think that's one of the difficulties that the opening has. And that's why it feels so frantic is because like Camille is doing stuff that feels like the choices a character would be making at like in the midpoint or even at the end of one of these movies, not like five minutes into a film. And even in the show, him stealing the Gundam is episode two. It's yeah. not episode one. It's it's we've been with him for a full episode. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the decisions that gets the least attention. And I mean, this is also a stretch, though, where, you know, there are stretches of these movies where I can like maybe point to what I would do differently. I don't know what I, I like. It's really hard to say what the hell you oh, would do yeah. to do this. And like, like, I, I guess what I would say is that I do think. Here's the thing about movie one. I think if this movie were roughly the length of like the Gundam 79 movies, like 140 minutes, I think what they've chosen as the domain of movie one is fucking perfect. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's it's that intro, which is like your first act, those first five episodes. And then once the Argama is off and it's in space and they're they're on their mission, everything, and they've made very smart editorial decisions to streamline this, where they plant the flag for you very early that the Ayug's mission is to do this strike on Jaburo. And so the entire movie is about getting to Jaburo and doing that strike, and then the immediate aftermath, which is where Amuro comes in. And so it has this narrative thrust that is really strong for a movie, I think. And it's part of why the second half of this movie honestly works very well for me. Um, and a lot of the cuts, because you're cutting around that central like spine that you've given it, is is it allows the cuts to have a lot of latitude. Um the problem is that that first act just needs to be longer to fit all of that in. Like, in the 140-minute version of this movie, I think the extra 40 minutes are primarily going to that first act, you know? Um, because you just need a little more of the time. You do. I do think, like, ultimately you probably do need Camille introduced punching Jared. You need just a little more of how fucking angry he is. Because, like, it sort of struck me that a lot of the anger that is directed at his parents isn't fully expressed in the movie version until his scenes with four in movie two Mm -hmm. um because they just kind of get lost in the shuffle in movie one um so yeah that is that is obviously where the difficulties are but also in 95 minutes uh, i have no fucking idea how i do this it's better than i would make (laughs) yeah no i mean that that's that is like will be a refrain throughout these discussions is like me criticizing things that are in the movie is not me saying like there's a better way to do this it is a recognition of this is like a stupid thing to have tried to do with the restrictions that they have (laughs) like like there's just i don't think there for me personally i don't think there is a way to make three 90 minute movies adapting a 50 episode tv of show of zeta gundam without totally reanimating it like i think using so much of the existing footage strikes them in like puts them into this box where like if they just edited jared out if you could do a version where you could edit jared out jared out which they kind of almost need to because his stuff just gets so cut down in episode in movie two and then movie three he's like such an afterthought it feels like it's this thing where it's like the character isn't as relevant as he is in the TV show version. That's like if they could just get rid of Jared and find like some other kind of catalyst that would be like easier to get through. Um, it would like expedite so much of what is happening in the plot of the first movie that would give them so much space. But you can't edit Jared out because you're using the existing footage. Like there, I don't think there's any way you could have like cut around that and still make it work because it is still the inciting incident of the plot. Um, so yeah, like I just think these movies have this absurd challenge in front of them because they have to use so much of the existing footage in order to be like cheap enough to produce um because they wouldn't ever fund a like full 
reanimated version of this story it would be extremely expensive um so yeah so like criticizing these movies is not me saying like i think they could have done something different is me saying fuck this would be hard to do right that's a question though sean if they had done like the so this is not a perfect comparison, but a la Hideaki Anno doing Genesis, Neon Genesis Evangelion again. And those are obviously mm-hmm. all completely new animation. They're also mostly new plot. Um, but like if they had done the new version of, of um, Zeta Gundam and a new translation was three ninety minute, like the same length, but it's new animation all the way through. And they still roughly had the three part structure they've given it. How well do you think that would work? I, I feel like a lot of the flaws we're going to point to could be ironed out within roughly the same structures if there was stuff they could do like just don't have Jared in the movies because there's no room for him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think, I think yeah, I think the instincts of like where to end and like start and end the movies are always really good. Like the, the ending of movie one is the best part of movie one and the ending of movie two is like one of, if not the best part of movie two as well. Like I think they, they know the shape of the overall story and like some of the cuts they make while it's like it's always hard because i love the tv show so much like some of the cuts of like for the third movie they cut out like the dakar stuff completely like that hurts because that like really kills char's character arc but char is not the protagonist so if you have to kill a character arc get rid of like that part of char's so yeah like i think their instincts um are like spot on it's just a lot of it is you have to spend so much time doing stuff that you shouldn't have to spend time doing. Like, let's launch the Gundams and have a, like, a brief little fight scene and then come back and then launch the Gundams again and have a brief little fight scene because this was five episodes with five distinct fight scenes that you can't really edit together. Um, whereas if you're making a new movie, you would just compress that into one big fight scene in the middle of the movie and not have leave, come back, leave, come back, leave, come back, leave, come back. Um, and that kind of like very choppy pace that the fights have. Um, you could get rid of that completely if you're just reanimating it. Well, while we're talking about reanimation, should we just cover one of the elephants in the room that affects all three of these movies, which uh-huh. is... Okay. So the animation. Um, you know, half of it... Not half of it. The, the bulk of it is old footage. And then you have this new animation. And obviously the contrast is stark. There is no way it could not have been stark. This is TV animation done in 4 by 3 in on film with you know, physical ink and paint, no computers involved in 1985. And then new animation done in 2005 in widescreen, in HD, digitally, basically, uh, with digital ink and paint, with computer systems. I will say, I think it blends as good as it possibly could, given all of that. Like, they have clearly made some choices to try to make it blend better. So I think the animation style they employ in the new footage is is very clearly trying to mimic what they did in 1985 down to like they make color decisions that modern Gundam does not make like Captain Bright's hair um, is if you look at like Unicorn Gundam it's more black with like a green outline they use like a similar shade of green they used in 1985 they do they make choices like that Um, they have clearly applied and I'm not sure without like asking someone involved in the production I, I, I couldn't know I don't know if they printed this out to film and then rescanned it or if they applied some kind of digital grain filter but there is a a 35 millimeter ish grain field over all of the footage the original stuff and the new stuff and that is there no matter what it's not like you cut from 
old TV footage to the new stuff and there's suddenly no grain and it looks like Gundam Double Zero or something from the mid-2000s that was purely digital. They, there's a concerted effort to try to make it like um, functionally look the same. Um, backgrounds in the new stuff are done really similarly and sometimes I'm pretty sure they're reusing backgrounds from the 1985 show. Yeah, they do um, They do occasionally do things where they will blend new animation and old animation, either with, like, backgrounds, yeah. or sometimes they will have on old anim... On like, most of it is old, and then they do the cut, like, the pilot cutaways, and that will be new, or the reverse, it's new footage with old pilot cutaways, which they do a lot in the third yeah. movie to save budget. Yeah, so... And even on, like, purely new footage, if you look at the backgrounds, they are not done quite the same as you would with, like all digital animation in 2005. They have made concerted efforts to make it blend. Um, but, but, but... <laughs> yeah. With all of that, it's just jarring. And there's no way for it not to be jarring. Some of it, like... So movie one, I actually think, is the least jarring on this because it tends to be the most... Here's a concentrated sequence that's old TV footage. Here's a new scene. Here's a concentrated sequence. And then, like, the entire ending is new uh, animation. Whereas, like, movie two and three have an awful lot of, like, in scenes, you will do a shot-reverse shot where one character is old animation and one character is new animation, and they're just doing shot-reverse shots on that because they've replaced someone's lines. Uh, and so I think it almost gets more jarring as it goes along. Like, it's there's no, like, sustained stretch that's all new animation. Um, it's a lot of back and forth. Uh, and whatever, however they scanned and remastered the original footage for, like, Zeta Gundam... It looks very good in some ways. I think like the color density and the grain field, I, I like a lot of that. It is overly noisy though, and it is very compressed and artifacted. And I don't know if that's like the modern Blu-ray transfers. I kind no, of No, that's suspect... the DVDs. It's the yeah. DVDs from that period, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, were they just using DVD footage or had they like gone back to the 35 millimeter elements? I'm not sure. It's, I it's... think they just used DVD footage based on okay. interviews I read. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it is not as if they did like a fresh 2K film scan and put that into the computer and cleaned it up and tried to make it match. Like, it's, I have some problems with the modern uh, HD version of Zeta Gundam. It's way too DNR'd and, and they've taken too much grain out. But it's undeniable that if you used like a modern remastering process, you could make this all blend much, much better than they did here. Yes, but the, at the end of the day, like the effect it has, especially when you are cutting between them um it is like it, it it is there are a few things you could do to like more like kick you out of like the flow of the movie than doing this like it is the thing where like it it, it sucks because like overall you know for a 1980s tv anime zeta gundam looks fucking great and like proof of that is how good all the stuff like they they leave big sections of some of the most important stuff in movie three just what the old animation is because they it wouldn't even look better if they redid it because of like yeah. directorial choices are so strong in that third movie which we'll talk about um in terms of like the ending of zeta gundam just fucking rules so why why change it um why why did why did they change some of it um but um <laughs> You know, when you have this thing where you get used to the way that, like, the really high number of frames and things you get in the new animation, and then you cut to uh, some of the stuff that is, like, the weakest looking stuff from Zeta Gundam, because a lot of the stuff for the first two movies in particular they keep is, like, eh, here's, like, two people standing in a room talking, because 
let's just have like these two people standing in the room talking. It's like, and that's like the cheapest looking shit because that's where in the original, it's like a still image with like one dude's like, you know, mouth cut out that they're basically just animating the only the frames on the mouth because it's a TV anime and needs to be cheap. And when you're cutting between that stuff, like it's almost hilarious sometimes just how jarring the jump is because it's so distracting. Um, and especially because it is also... You know, it is, it is a zoomed in, basically, version of Zeta Gundam because it has to be cropped. Like, it is not just a thing where they just went in, oh, let's just cut off the tops and bottoms and move on. Like, they intelligently cropped for the image, right? Um, but at the end of the day, it's still sort of like some stuff just looks kind of weirdly blurry because it's not supposed to be, like, looked at um, at this aspect ratio and, like, like, focused in on these elements so tightly. And so it makes, like, a lot of the stuff from the original show look really rough. And so when you just go from these long stretches of new animation and then you cut to the original Zeta Gundam TV footage, it's like, it looks like it's a joke or something. Like, it's so ridiculous how far the change is. It would be like if you were watching King Kong and someone had edited together a version of King Kong that is cutting between the original movie and the Peter Jackson movie. It's just like, <laughs> it would just be utterly bizarre. You wouldn't know how to process those cuts, right? Because in one sequence, it's this very fluid like CG full gorilla man with like motion capture and all that. And the other, it's a toy that is, you know, stop motion capture. And like both of the visual styles have their charm. And I like the way the original movie looks more, but in the same way that I kind of like the way that Zeta looks more aesthetically than the new animation, even if I recognize the new animation is technically way more advanced and way more expensive. It's still like pretty juxtaposing the two just is so bizarre. And, and when, you can't get into the flow of the movie sometimes because the plot's moving so fast. A further barrier that I had definitely with the first two movies was just like that effect of like, I just can't absorb myself in like the fiction of what's being told because I'm so consciously aware that I'm viewing things and I'm aware that right now I'm looking at something that was animated in 1985 and now I'm looking at something that's animated in 2005. Um, and that just like kills part of like the audience experience of it to me. So, like, what you're saying is it, 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 like, it disallows you to just do the basic, like, suspension of disbelief or immersion yeah. or whatever that is of, I'm watching animation, I know Camille Bidon is something someone drew on a piece of paper, but I don't think about that while I'm watching. You kind of have to think about it if in one shot Camille was drawn in 1985 and looks like it, and then in the next shot he was drawn, like, and then scanned into a computer and digitally colored in 2005, and it just looks completely different. Yeah, in yeah. the exact same way that if you did that with King Kong, while I'm watching either of those movies, I just believe the character. Yeah. I don't think about the fact that this is a toy or this is like a digital recreation because they did such good character work in both those movies. But if you, yeah, if you juxtapose it, you're so consciously aware of what is happening in the production technical side of it that it's not allowing you to just absorb the narrative. Um, and it just gets in its own way. And it's unfortunate because there's no kind of way around it. Like they couldn't have... Like, like you really could not have edited these that TV show into three ninety minute movies if you're not making significant enough changes that you have to. You would have to either like really dramatically rewrite whole scenes of dialogue and just reuse footage, but give them totally new dialogue to like pave over plot inconsistencies and stuff, or you redo a lot of the animation. Um, and so it's like it's one of those things where I don't know what you do about it given like the restrictions of what they have. Um, but it is supremely distracting and i think it is why i found a lot of the viewing experience of the first two movies very dull was partially that like i just couldn't get absorbed into the experience of watching the movie because i was conscious of like technical decisions being made basically at all times and it's funny because i don't 
I obviously don't disagree with anything you're saying because it is just a fact that it is weird and distracting, right? Like, it would be hard. Like, I could show this to my mom who's never watched an anime all the way through and she would be like, what's going on with the animation, right? You know? Mm -hmm. Um, But, like, I wasn't that alienated by it. In fact, actually, I think the first movie was by far the least distracting for me on that because the first movie has the least new animation and it tends to be concentrated more in sequences. The thing that started bothering me in the second and third movie is there's just no systematic way they deploy new animation. It is just purely on a shot-by-shot basis, does this shot need it for whatever reason? And there are some sustained sequences, but like, you know, the majority of the third movie is built on the backbone of old animation because they've cut a lot, but they haven't like radically reoriented the plot. And so it's a lot of stuff where, like, like the, I think the best example of this in the whole trilogy is the famous scene where Shar has his I have never betrayed anyone in my life Haman scene. Mm-hmm. And in that, it's mostly old animation. And then for the line where Shar says his thing, it cuts to Shar and he looks different because now it's 2005 and then it cuts back to old Haman. And so it's just this pure, like, one insert because they wanted to change the line. And we'll talk about how they changed that line because I think it's kind of fascinating. But they wanted to change that line, so it's just this one shot they have to do it with. And that's what I mean by it's not systematic. Like, the systematic way to do that is you would reanimate that whole scene. But they're not. They're doing it on a shot-by-shot basis. And so it, that's where it gets distracting to me. And frankly, even more of that starts popping up later. Um, there's a lot of it in the second movie, because the second movie has to make a lot of like changes to to kind of smooth over some of the transitions. Um, you know, like the first movie, the climax is very easy to get into because they've almost entirely reanimated the last like 10 minutes of that movie. Um, so yeah, it's it's tough. I still felt very immersed in these movies. And I don't know if I can exactly tell you why. I definitely noticed the changes while they were happening. I think maybe it's because I got used to it or whatever. But like uh, I was still, and I maybe it's just because like the force of the storytelling and the speed at which it happens. And I do think the audio mix is very good. I was mm-hmm. listening to these with my nice headphones and like you get Shigeaki Saigusa's an utterly incredible score for Zeta Gundam that has been expanded in some incredible ways too. And you have all the new voice acting and sound effects and like, it's just, it works on the audio level. So that helps kind of smooth things over. Um, But yeah, I, I didn't feel super distracted, but it did make me think of another example. I've been trying to think of like what I would compare this to for people maybe who are listening to this, who haven't watched these movies. What it reminded me of was Dragon Ball Kai. That's the only other thing uh-huh, I can think yeah. of like this. And Dragon Ball Kai distracted me even more, and I'll tell you why. But but if you don't know, Dragon Ball Kai is the show they did in 2009 that re-edited Dragon Ball Z to cut out all or most of or what they could of the filler. The basis of Dragon Ball Kai was all the old Dragon Ball Z footage, um, basically from the Dragon Box remasters, then up up scaled to, to HD. And actually, the remastered footage in Dragon Ball Kai looks very nice. Um but then sometimes because they wanted to like redo a line or fix something or redo a scene, they would have these reanimated elements. And it was usually the cell layer, the character animation that would be reanimated on top of old animation. Sometimes it made sense. Like Vegeta, when you first meet him in Dragon Ball Z, has weird coloring that he never has again. So they reanimate him to have his normal like, series canon coloring. 
Um, and that is like, okay, I get that. And sometimes, like, this became a whole thing in the fandom during the time is that they were frequently reanimating things and we had absolutely no idea why. Um, because it would usually just be they would be tracing on top of the old animation, but with, like, very thick digital lines and bad digital coloring. And so it would be extremely jarring. On some level, Dragon Ball Kai is less jarring because it was all done in, like, 2009 and 10, And so, like, the original source footage looked a lot better with the... The tools they were using um but it was also just this thing that it would just come out of nowhere and that's what i mean by like that lack of like systemic like approach to the reanimation when it's done on such a shot by shot basis those individual shots could look very good but when you put it all together then it just becomes like very jarring as you're explaining sean yeah yeah it, yeah it is yeah it, it, it definitely severely impacted the way i enjoyed the movies i think the main reason it didn't like, because I definitely agree that I think the third one is the one that uses it the most haphazardly. But at the same time, I think, like, the third one has, like, the most clear, like, spine to what it's doing as a as a plot. Because yeah. it's just like, let's cut out the Dakar stuff. Let's cut out the Rosamia stuff. And that leaves about 90 minutes of, of Zeta Gundam to do. Um, and so, like, it didn't hurt me that much there because it's just like, you know, I, I'll just watch the end of Zeta Gundam again if that's just what this is. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the other thing is that... There's so so in the original Gundam movies, the the original trilogy. There's a lot of new animation there. You obviously don't notice. The, there's no shift quality to it because it's all done on 35 millimeter. It's done in the same animation style. All of that. So it all is flows very well. But part of that too is that in those movies, they're doing reanimation much 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 less to do transitions between episodes than just to clean up animation or improve sequences or add detail. And so there's a real like artistic quality to it. Where that third movie. Like, it's basically just presenting the final two episodes in full, but it's reanimated most of them because they have the time and money to do it, and it looks sick as shit. This movie, like, or these three movies, like, most of the new animation is, like, purely functional. Like, it's there to, like, mm -hmm. clean up a scene or redo a line. It's, it's pretty rare. Like, I would say the ending of the first movie is the only major sequence I would point to that's, like, that exists because they wanted to make something look cooler than they could have done in 1985. Um, there are new scenes and some of those new scenes are very good, but most of the new scenes are new scenes that could have existed in 1985. They just didn't. Um, and so they're having to do them with new animation. Whereas like, you know, in the original Gundam movies, when you have new animation, it's stuff that like, they just couldn't have pulled off on a TV budget in 1979. So now they're doing it in 1982. Um, and I, that's another, like, I guess, complaint I have with the new animation is it's yeah. so functional. It's not as exciting. Oh well, yeah. And I mean, part of that stuff with the original movies also is like, animation has varying level of qualities between shots no matter what like and that is like yeah. apparent in these movies because like i said like you have some of that action stuff from the original zeta gundam at the end of the series like the last two episodes of zeta gundam are some of like the coolest looking most well animated tv anime episodes i've ever seen some of that is just like animation prowess a lot of that is also just like directorial choices they make um so it's like but you will always have in particularly japanese animation um very varying levels of quality like numbers of frames of animation things like that between cuts or shots um and so as long as it's the same general aesthetic and style because with the original movies those were made two years after the, the like one to two years after the tv show came out it's like yeah this is obviously a way better looking shot of like the G fighter taking off from the white base than, than you would have gotten in the original TV show, but it is aesthetically in line with the rest of the animation you're seeing. Whereas here, there's just no choice. You can't make it look like the eighties for like a million different reasons. It, it wouldn't have been possible. Um, so it's like, it, they, 
you know, I think it was right to just like, you know, do clean it up and like blend it as much as you can with like the backgrounds and, and grain and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, there's just nothing you could have done uh, to fix this problem, I think, without just giving the movie a shit ton of budget. Yeah. So which, which I would always support. Give Yoshioki Tomino money to make what he wants to make. That's yeah. what I say. But, uh, all right. So we talked about the animation here um, for movie one. I, so we talked about that the beginning is very rushed. Um, but do you agree with me in general that like the second half of that movie like works pretty well on, in like a propulsive way because of the, the kind of push towards Jaburo? I really, it worked for me. I, I would say I think the very ending, I think the, all the stuff that they reanimated, like that section works great. I think I'm very mixed on the Jaburo thing. I think it was smart to give that objective. And you're right that it's like they, they insert lines earlier and they create some lines um near the beginning of the movie that did not exist in the tv show to like create this like direction of we're going to Jabro. i think for me the main problem with it is that there's very little like connection to camille in there and so i think it's like structurally it makes a lot of sense and i think it's with what they have it's a smart choice at the same time i found myself very bored by most of the action stuff in Jabro because because like the the Camille's main connection and the main emotional thread there that ties Camille specifically there are two things. It's his rivalry with Jared and it's his desire to see Reko again because she's become his surrogate mother figure. Both those things are present in the movie, but they're so heavily diluted, right? Yeah. So it's like you have some of that stuff with Jared, but like so much of it, like his relationship, Jared's relationship with um I can never remember with all the names for all of his like random lovers that get killed by Camille. Um, I think it's Lila <laughs> is the first one. Um, like you have those moments and Lila's in there and she gets killed, but she's in it for like 10 minutes rather than that being a multiple episode thing of you seeing her yeah. relationship with Jared build up, Camille's like antagonism toward Jared build up. Similarly, you have a series of episodes that like build up Camille's relationship with Rekua and him kind of throwing himself at Rekua kind of um, as this surrogate mother figure. In the movie, they just have to like lean as hard as they can into that one fully reanimated scene in the middle that's all dialogue after Camille's mother is killed, um, where she's like, like he's like clinging onto her. And they just like lean very hard there to give you enough of that as you can. Um, but I still don't think it's like particularly effective, especially because they then have to cut out all the stuff that you see Rekua land on Earth. You see her meet Kai. You see her get captured. All that is set up in the TV show. And in the movie, all that's cut out. And all of a sudden, it just cuts to Rekua and she's in jail. And then Camille gets like a psychic impression of her. Um, so it's like, I think the overall structural choices are sound. But so much has to be cut out in order to fit things into the time limit they have. That I think a lot of the actual like emotional thrust, and this is like going to be my same complaint with a lot of the second movie. A lot of the actual emotional like character-based thrust gets eliminated, and so the action scenes become action scenes, and they don't become like narrative moments for me, I guess. Yeah, so I don't. I agree with most of that. I, one thing I'd say on Rekua is, I agree with it. Like that, that her and Camille's relationship. I was even honestly like struggling to remember exactly how it went in the show because it is so cut down here. Um, and vestigial but I, I actually didn't mind her where they cut made choices in like because they, they like very clearly signpost she's going to Jabiro ahead of us she's going there hey we haven't heard from her in a while like they add these in and then you cut to her in jail and I actually thought that was a pretty savvy choice of scene because there just happens to be this scene in the show where she's in jail with Kai and like they 
verbally like recap what happened to themselves and they basically are able to use that and i felt like as a movie viewer i was like totally fine on because even like when camille comes in and meets kai she like runs through like this is kai and he's here's who he is and here's his rap sheet so it like worked for me fine on that level i always would like more kai because he's awesome it's toshio furukawa but Mm -hmm. um it, that that worked for me fine. I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I think this is actually one area where, though, where like the sheer speed of the movie worked in its favor for me, in that it's so unrelenting. I totally see where you have your reaction of just kind of being bored by it. I was pretty riveted by it because like Zeta has just such a singular style to its action, and it is so much of it, even in its kind of vestigial form here, is so virtuoso. And and I, I just was kind of like locked in with it. And I think there's this quality where. Camille, and this is kind of true for him in this stretch of the show too, is just swept up in these giant events, you know? Um, and, and the second movie really is, and that part of the series is really where he starts to make choices about those giant events. And so this first movie is kind of, you're along for the ride with Camille after he makes those initial choices. And I just kind of felt swept up along for that ride. And I just, I get to the end of the movie and, and the credits start to roll and I realize I'm finally taking a breath. I found it like very riveting and exciting, just almost like as an action movie, um, even if a lot of that action has been drained of some of its character and emotional context, which you're not wrong about, I agree. But yeah, it, it this is just going to come down to does it work for you or not. Um, I'm not going to say it works for me in the sense of this is better than the show. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying like in its own way it worked for me. Yeah, I think for me specifically what it is is I think like there's just not that much drama happening in like the attack on Jabro feels like a very plot moment thing that has to happen unless this thing that is dramatically motivated in the sense of I think one of the reasons why just cutting to Rekua being in the jail with Kai doesn't work for me is because part of the tension of that sequence is that you know as the audience Rekua is in there nobody else knows that she is trapped in Jabro. Yeah. Camille doesn't know but the audience knows, right? It's the it's the Hitchcock, the bomb under the table thing, right? You show the bomb under the table before the discussion, so that way the audience knows there is like a threat here, rather than if you just have a bunch of people talking and then it explodes, there's no tension to what has occurred. I think that's exactly my problem with what happens here with Jabiro is they only introduce Rekko being an element in the scene once it becomes directly relevant, and as soon as she's introduced, then Camille learns that she's there and he goes to rescue her, rather than that whole sequence you know in the TV show that the Titans are planning to blow up Jabro. You know that Rekka was there and Camille doesn't yet. So the tension is, will he find that out? Will he be able to rescue her before the nukes blow? All that stuff has a much clearer like tension structure to it in the TV version. Whereas in the movie version, it's like those things happen because they need to happen, right? It's the kind of thing that if you were to totally reanimate it, I feel like you wouldn't do any of that that way because it wouldn't makes sense to there it feels like one of the things that happens in the movie because they're locked into that structure they're locked into her having to have been captured and be in there with kai because you need to have rekoa there and that's just the situation she was in in the tv show even if you can't have done all the proper setup to make it work that's totally fair yeah i don't disagree with that <laughs> it's a yeah. good point inevitable sacrifices were made in yeah the... again this is not a like and they fucked yeah. up because they did this it is a i don't know how you would have done this but they you right. know th- again right. like i think them making the smart choices around using Jabro as the focal point for the climax and setting that up earlier like that was a smart choice and i think it is what like allows for a viewer like you that that doesn't have the problems with it i have to get swept up in it and enjoy it because it does have a focus um, and that's smart because I don't think 
I would never, it would never have occurred to me to make that the focus of the first movie in a Zeta Gundam trilogy, but it is like the smart choice. It's just like unfortunate that it ends up getting, for me, caught up in things that you have to do a lot of plot-based stuff because you're kind of caged in by it rather than being able to sort of like fully take advantage of that really smart structural choice they made. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then you do have the ending. So so Amuro, it's kind of funny. Like Most of Amuro's scenes are actually in here. They're in mm-hmm. very truncated form, but they do hit all of the basic beats of the Amuro story. If we meet him at his compound, uh, who I did do a tweet on this, I had never realized Amuro is in this like black suit while he's at that compound that looks exactly like the costuming of Daisuke Jigen, who is the character in um, uh, Lupin the Third. Mm-hmm. And if you've, I did a tweet comparing the two, and it is fucking hilarious because like Amuro is slightly off model in some of those shots, and his legs are way too tall and long, and that's what makes him. And he's in like the Daisuke Jigen hands in the pocket slightly stooped over position if you just put a cigarette in his mouth and like a black boulder on it'd be perfect um beside the point that's there in the original animation it made me laugh um so you have that you have kika cats and let's there you have frau Bo, um all of that um it it obviously does not hit with the same impact because there's something about like the just sheer like sadness of those scenes in the tv shows that i think is kind of a durational thing that you just inevitably lose here but they do hit all those, and then at the end of the movie, you have Amuro and and Cats come in to save the day uh, in a mostly reanimated scene that is very, very well animated. Yeah, no, yeah, it, it, all that stuff I really like. I think there are some like things they do, choices they make, and kind of I feel like some of the dialogue in the Amuro scenes with Fraubo is like slightly sharper than it is in the TV show. Um, like they do, I think some of that is because they have to convey more in a compressed time. But like, like I think a lot of the dialogue is the same or very similar, but there are just some like slight tweaks they make, um, particularly to like how Amuro and Fraubo talking to each other, that it's just like they kind of sharpen up that dialogue slightly. And I think that works really well. Um, and then, yeah, like it just, you know, if you're going to pick a moment from this sequence of the TV show to give like a bunch of good anime budget to, it is the moment where fucking Amuro flies this giant cargo plane into this really mobile mobile suit because Amuro's fucking cool. And <laughs> it's like that whole sequence and all the stuff with Char. Um, and you know, just like that, that is one of those just like great to me, like very iconic scenes in the original Zeta Gundam of Amuro and Char both like saying each other's name without them consciously knowing that the other person is there, but they just like instinctually detect it. So he's like, what are you doing, Amuro? It's like, get out of the way, Char. And then 30 seconds later, they're like, did I just fucking say Char? What the fuck? Um, and then them getting out and like looking at each other while they're falling. Like, you know, that, that moment looks gorgeous in the original show as well, but it is a very nice looking. This is one of the ones that I remember when I watched um, all the reanimated footage and like a YouTube compilation several years ago watching this scene and being like fuck yeah this looks fucking great like this scene rules this is a very good looking version of this scene um, it is very cool yeah and Camille's role in that of like catching Amuro and Amuro like being on the palm it's just it's a it's it's such a good climax and like payoff for, for the movie too like I just was so pumped coming out of this movie like if I had been like a Japanese teenager seeing this I feel like in 2005 I would have walked out of the theater gone to the box office bought another ticket and gone back in if for no other reason that scene at the end it is just very very well done and um yeah I I had a lot of fun with it it's just just a great kick to credits it's 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 a really good ending yeah and all the the action stuff the action scene with Rosamia and all that like it is mostly redone footage it looks fucking fantastic um there's also a really good 
I think really smart like choice. This is like one of like the smartest scenes that they did a reanimation for to like kind of change some context around is when Kai and Hayato are on the um their plane, whatever, I forget what it's called, the Caribou's like big carrier plane. Um, and Kai sort of pulls Hayato aside. And he's like, "What the fuck are you guys doing? That's uh, it's basically replacing the he's a, he is a Char letter." But he's right. like, "That guy's Char. What are you guys doing?" And then Camille overhears that. Um, I think that's like just like it's a really good scene because one, I just like having Kai and Hayato like interact a little bit more directly than they kind of do in the TV show. Um, and then also, it is a smart way to get over the problem of Camille at this point in the TV show has basically figured out that. Um, Quattro is Char because it's really fucking obvious that Quattro is Char, right? But it's like a thing that he realizes in like subtly over the course of multiple episodes where there's no moment where he said, turns to the camera and goes, I think that Quattro Bagina is actually Char. But there's lots of things he does that keys into the viewer that's like Camille's like figuring this out. Um, and then this is, but then in the plot, this is the moment basically where Camille, like it is confirmed directly because he confronts Char at this point in the TV show about him being Char. Um, but so getting that information and just like this one quick moment and just having him overhear this conversation and that being in this version of the story, a revelation that Camille has rather than it being a thing that he has slowly put together himself because you just haven't had the time to spend it um, on like seeing him put the pieces together. I think that it was just like a very smart decision um, that they made as like a movie version of the story. Yeah, and that's what I mean when I say I love following just all the like very thought through decisions that they make in the editing or in the the rewriting, and that's that's one of those. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right, so that's movie one. Anything else to say about that? Um, I'm trying because there's a couple of other moments with reused animation. I think one of like the fun ones that I think is the most fun is when uh, Rekoa is showing Emma the footage of the Ghast Colony that is footage from the episode in Zeta Gundam where they go and visit the gas colony. So instead of delivering that as like an episode <laughs> story, she shows like this, like on this camera. And it, I love because it it's all reanimated footage of Rekoa and Emma looking at a screen that has footage from 1985 Zeta Gundam. And in the footage is Emma, but you only see her from the back in a space suit. So they can just kind of get away with this is archival footage but it's i think it is like a very good tongue-in-cheek almost kind of like if you've seen the tv show it's a very memorable episode um and so it's like having that there and delivering that, that this is the moment where emma fully turns from the titans instead of that having it be a whole episode which is great it's one of the best episodes of zeta yeah but you can't do a whole 30 minute chunk of the movie on just that point for emma um instead of doing that just use that footage have this quick moment um, and just deliver it that way. It's like very efficient. And I think it's probably my favorite use of reanimated footage because of them blending it in that way that is very funny to me. That's very, very smart. Yeah. I uh, I could not remember where the Ghast Colony episode goes, so I wasn't sure. So I'm glad you brought that up. I was like, I'm pretty sure that's footage from episode of Seda Gundam, but I didn't remember if like, does it happen in this stretch? Does it happen later? It, it does happen in the stretch. So yeah, that's, that's good. Uh, that's great. And then did you say there was another one? Um, yeah, I guess the other one, because there's this that one big reanimated scene. I kind of touched on it with the Requa stuff. But they have a very big scene in the middle of the movie that is all reanimated that is just Char, Requa, Emma, and Camille sitting around and talking. Um, that It's like, I think it's probably like the longest stretch of reanimated footage that is not used for an action scene in all three of these movies where they just like really move through a lot of plot because that's where they introduce Char. That's where they do a lot of Emma's character development. That's where they set up most of what Rekoa is as a character for the, all three of the movies. Like they just yeah. like 
it is a very dense scene of dialogue of these three people talking around. And then it ends with a moment I love that they added in as this weird little touch where as they're leaving the room, um, I forget, I think it's it's Char gets like, Char, yeah, it's, as they're leaving the room, Emma leaves, Char and Rekwa stop by the door. And that's when they have the conversation about that, that Rekwa's going to go down to Jaburo. And then Emma's like, what are you guys doing? And then Rekwa turns to her and says, oh, the lieutenant was just touching my butt. And then she leaves. And it's this very weird moment of like, what? And yeah. then just cuts. Char, I think, doesn't Ikeda have a line there about like, like it's, it's he has some reaction that's very funny there, I felt. Yeah, he, he's just, yeah. just like, huh? Um, yeah. Yeah, he's just like, hey. Yeah. It's great. Uh, and it's funny because it is combining multiple scenes from the original. Because, like, the whole mm-hmm. conversation about, like, there was a man named Shara's novel and he did these things. And, like, that's in the original. I remember that very vividly. It's a really strong scene. And I think that scene, that dialogue does happen in a similar setting where they're all at the table together. Yes. But they're combining it with other things. And, yeah, it's it's a notable dialogue scene. There's there's some other stuff, like, there's a big scene with Basque Ohm and, and the Titans and stuff in, I think, film two or three that is a similar, like, giant dialogue scene. But, yeah, this might be the most substantial of those that's just completely new. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, oh, the only other thing I want to note is that, so all of these movies have theme songs by Gact, G-A-C-K-T, who is a very famous singer in Japan, uh, actually still producing albums and touring to this day. I looked it up. Yeah, um, star I, of hit video game of Final Fantasy VII Crisis Core, Gact. He plays a major character in that game. Oh, I did not know that. That's mo- cool. Mostly where I've been thinking about Gact in the past year is in entirely <laughs> connection to Final Fantasy VII Crisis Core. Um, I really like the two songs for this movie. So this mm-hmm. movie kicks off with the song Metamorphize, uh, or Metamorphose. It's, you know, it's weird. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I like that song very much. I like the whole opening sequence because they give this like a proper big like opening credit sequence that you don't often get in anime where like... Well, okay, all anime has opened. You know what I mean. I mean, like, yes. in an anime movie where it's it's like a movie-movie opening where, like, you've got the stars listed and, and all of that uh, and over this big song. It's really cool. And then um, at the end of the movie, you get this, oh, what's the song at the end? I forget what it's called, but I like the song that plays over the ending. Um, I only have it in Japanese. Kimi ga mate iru kara. Yeah, um, because I'm waiting for you. Yeah, it's a very good song. Uh, so I, I like the ones in the sequels as well, but the, the songs in the first movie I think are the best. And they're yeah, very I good. also, I adore what they do at the end of the credits of the first movie where the logo for the second movie comes up and Four and Haman are like leaning yes. on it. And it's like, that is like, and I was really bummed in the third movie that they they didn't do, like they did something slightly similar with the Zeta Gundam, but it, like I thought that it was such a slick move as the song is like fading out and the credits are ending, the logo for the next movie comes up and here's like the two yeah. like really memorable characters that are going to show up. I thought that was like a really sick move. Absolutely. All right. Movie two, Lovers, uh, which I like that it's Lovers and then the next one is Love is the Pulse of the Stars. So two of the yeah. three of these have the word love in the title. Uh, and this one... This one, I think, structurally is the oddest of the three. Mm-hmm. It has almost the exact same problem as Mobile Suit Gundam 2, Soldiers of Sorrow, which is that it kind of feels like two movies. You know, Soldiers of Sorrow has the split around the middle where you have the, um, what is it, day? The, the... Uh, uh, oh, man, I, I should be able to run this off immediately off the top of my head. Odessa Day. Odessa Day. You have Odessa Day, and like that, like happens in the middle of the movie, and then you continue on to all the Dublin stuff that ends the movie. No, all uh, the Jabro stuff. Dublin is Double Zeta. Sorry, sorry, Jabro. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, see so if all the Jabros. No, no, don't. 
they go. Don't oh yeah, they, yeah, they do Dublin? go. Yeah, yeah, they do also go to Dublin in the original, and then they go to yeah. Jabra, right? Because that's the end of that movie is in yes, Jabra, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you do have like they have Kai's girlfriend. Yes, they who have picks Kai's up in whole yeah. story. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but that kind of feels like in an ideal version, maybe there would have been four movies, and you would have split those into two separate because there's kind of a culmination in the middle, and then you have to keep going. Um, this movie, I think, kind of has that too, where the first half is roughly like about four and and Camille and like Camille's adventures on Earth with Amuro, and then at the midpoint he gets back into space, and then the second half uh, is about you know that stuff and Camille kind of reintegrating with the crew and having kind of a new outlook, and and you have a lot of expanded um, stuff with like the supporting cast, uh, and then at the end you have the introduction of Haman Karn, um, which is a great ending. But it does kind of feel like two movies squished into one. Um, I did like it. I think the through line that they chose is like very there in the title. They do kind of foreground a lot of the different couplings that sort of happen through this stretch of the mm-hmm. of the show. Uh, and I think there's some good character work done throughout this movie. Uh, in some ways, I think it's the weakest of the three, just because I do think it's a little shapeless. Um, but I still I still enjoyed it for all the reasons I I said about the first one, and I think it has all the same limitations pretty much. <laughs> Yeah, because it definitely is. It kind of feels like broadly they what they did is they kind of centered the first half of the movie around four in terms of like leaning at as, as lovers, and then the second half of the movie around Sarah, um, and her like relationship with Katz and Camille, and yeah. like and I think that's where the second half of the movie gets hurt just because like a lot of that stuff in the TV show even is like that's like some like the weaker stuff. Like I think all the the whole thing of that they do basically the entirety of the Armstrong Plaza and Sarah has set the bomb up there and Camille meets her. Like that's a fine episode in Zeta Gundam, but it's like not something that like my mind jumps to as like a, this is like a really plot critical kind of moment. Um, But kind of because of the way they've chosen to frame things, it gets forefronted in a way that I think like really hurts the back half of this movie when they have to go through that whole plot sequence. Cause it is not a good, like building up to the climax of your movie kind of plot to have to go through. No, I think I agree with that. And I think that the problem with the Sarah, I actually like the Sarah stuff a lot, but the Sarah stuff is a lot of build up for payoff in the third movie. Yeah. And in the third movie, there's not really a lot of time to let that payoff like fully pay off. So I'm just not sure it like fully belongs in either film uh, to the degree it does. Um, I mean, you have to have Sarah there. You have to have Sarah there for the... If you're keeping the finale where Camille is, like, meeting all the spirits and Sarah is the one in his way and Kat's, like, it's really necessary if you're keeping that scene in. Um, and I think you should keep that scene in because it's it's the key to Zeta Gundam. But, like, yeah, it's... I agree. I think it's kind of in a, in a weird nether region because of where it's split between the two movies. Um, but, you know, I do think this movie does some of the best, like, character work. It's It slows down a little bit more than either of the other two movies to just have scenes with, like, with Cats and with with uh, Emma and with some of the other figures in this movie. Um, I think they do really good work with Emma and the captain of the, the other Aeug ship. Yeah, Hankin. Um, Henkin. I think there's there's a lot of reanimated stuff there to like I think play up that relationship and it's really sweet. There's a lot of stuff like there. I really like how Henkin comes across in this. Uh Opoly Chewy also I think is a uh, he gets he gets a uh, he is pretty much just as foregrounded as he is on the show, which is to say he is the best background character and mm-hmm. he's just great. I always love him. Yeah, yeah, I agree that definitely this movie it makes some space for that stuff and I do think like it's one of those elements where by 
the fact you've cut so much else out, I think like the Emma Henkin relationship plays a lot stronger in the movies than it does in the TV show where it's mostly like a kind of a gag for most of the TV show. And then it gets a little bit more serious once you get into the ending. Cause then obviously, you know, Henkin goes and sacrifices his old ship to save her, all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, like it does. does too. Yes. Yeah. But it does foreground that, uh, by putting it in the movie in a way that I think works pretty well. Um, one thing that's interesting with this movie, cause it kind of comes up more here is there's an interesting stuff for kind of like around the voice cast of these movies where a lot of the cast is the same from the TV show, but there are quite a few roles that were recast most notably for and Sarah. Um, and I think for both those roles um, to their detriment. Uh, so you've got like, so a couple of the recastings that we didn't talk about, but we're in the first movie. So Fa is recast. Um, she's now voiced by Satomi Arai. The main reason why Sa ha Fa has a new voice actress is because the original voice actress had retired at this point. So it's like, you had no choice. You had to recast her. I think the recasting worked really well for Fa. Um, I think like that, and she now is like this voice in all the games and stuff like that. Um, and she does a very She's good really job. good. It, it's, I definitely noticed that that wasn't Fa, but I had no problem with it. It was, she was mm -hmm. very good and she played off of Camille great, which is what that character needs to do. So worked fine. Yeah. Um, let's see. Hayato also got recast. I'm not entirely sure why Hayato got recast, but it's now it's Hiyama that plays him. So it's the same voice actor that is, uh, the main character in 08, the mess team. Um, in that one villain in Gundam Seed. So he's now Hayato. He does a good job. Again, I'd have no... I'd, like, tried to look around why. Uh, because, like, the voice actor's still alive. I think he's still working, it looks like. Um, so That's weird. I mean, reason... Hayato, I guess, he's not in any other 2000s Gundam stuff that we would... Yeah. like Other than games and stuff. So, yeah, I, I actually didn't notice with Hayato. He has so few lines, I, I probably mm. just didn't pay attention. Um, I'm pretty sure Rosamia is also recast, although they're, yeah, it's Asuka Yu is who they recast her as, who's like a great voice actress. Um, so it's like, I think that one, and Rosamia, most of her stuff is cut out of the movies, so that one works fine. The most notable ones, um, and these were like fairly controversial at the time in Japan, um, is that Four was recast. Um, let me see if I'll bring up the voice actress, because I have lost my page on this web browser. So four, no, not in the Italian cast. Uh, bu, 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 bu. Four was recast with the voice actress Yukana, who is like um, a pretty good voice actress. She's in um, Full Metal Panic. I think she's in Code Geass. Um, but so that role got recast, even though the original voice actress like still like works um, like she's in a lot of stuff. Uh, Saiko Shimazu is the original voice actress for four. Um, and then also then uh, Sarah got recast in her original voice actress also still works in a lot of stuff but her she was recast in movie two with an actress Chizuru Ikewaki and in the third movie they recast it again with a third actress Kaori, Shimamura, uh, Kaori Shimamura um and both of those are neither of them are really voice actors they're more tv actors um and I think for me like I think you can kind of tell um and for a lot of those recastings like, I think for, like, the performance is good, but I do think it's, like, a fairly different feeling character to me, um, partially because of the stuff that's cut down, but also I think the performance feels less like for is this person who is, like, completely, like, fractured at her core, right? That her, like, memory, her identity, her personality has been, like, manufactured and, and fucked with for her entire life, which is what, like, the character feels like in the TV show. Here, I think you get a way less of that comes across, um, and then Sarah feels like she's basically the same character. I just think the performance is not as good in either of the movies as what um, the TV version was. 
Um, yeah, something definitely sounded... I did not go in and check if they had been recast. Something sounded off about both of them. Four was the one I noticed most while watching these movies. Of just like... And I, and I honestly, off the top of my head, having only seen Zeta Gundam once, it wasn't like I could tell you that she had been recast as much as like just something felt very different. And I think it's exactly what you're talking about. There is less of that like... Like she is more strong-willed and put together here. And on one level, I do see that as a conscious choice because of how they've redone her arc. They don't have the second half of it. They have her die in action here. It's truncated. I think some, in some ways it works. In some ways it does make her feel like a less special character, though. So, yeah. Um, yeah but, but sorry. Well, just, just to cover like some of like the controversy of that, because for both of those roles being recast, like, you know, particularly in Japan there's like you know the culture around voice actors and voice acting in terms of like fans um is way more intense uh than it is in the west so there was some controversy and there's like lots of rumors about why the voice casting happened i think for me what it feels like probably happened is when you look at the number of roles that were voice cast the recast the vast majority of them are are female characters and it feels like this like vaguely sexist thing of you want to have um, younger voice actresses to play your young characters um, and then it's like uh, it's fine if like you know someone who's like 40 plays a teenager if they're a dude but if it's a woman it's like you can't buy it that's kind of what it feels like probably some of the, the casting choices were there yeah. are like lots of contradictory like quotes from Tomino and the sound director um, kind of trying to like kind of point the finger at different people about like why this ended up happening um, because basically the voice actresses for four and Sarah, all, like all they have said publicly is that like they were never offered a position. Um, and so it feels like my guess is probably just like the choice was made to go with younger voice actresses because it's like, that's just kind of the culture and it's sort of fucked up. Um, it's yeah. very fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> because uh um Toru Furia is or, uh, is, is still playing Amuro and Amuro yes, he, is he's, not... and he still does like lines for the games of like 14 year old Amuro right? right um right. and he kicks ass at it you know because he's a great voice actor um but like all these actors are great voice actors they could still play their character even if they're older of course i you know Masako Nozawa still voices kid Goku yes. when she has to and Goten and all of this stuff and no one bats an eye cuz she's amazing and perfect but that's actually an interesting point but Masako Nozawa is voicing young boys if she was voicing young girls would those roles be taken away that's an actually an interesting thing to think about that's yeah. a weird form of sexism going on yeah all right well anyway um, what did you think about the four stuff in in this movie? It's you know focused on sort of her initial appearance. It does get like it is heavily focused. It's not like they like cut this within an inch of its life. There is a, an extended section of the film on this. Um, I found it effective, but I do think like I was so waiting for her second appearance, it didn't even fully register that she got shot in the head for me. Where I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, I wonder how she'll recover from that bullet wound. And then it was about, it was near the end of the movie, I'm like, oh, they just killed her. Oh, they just killed her. Oh, okay. And I wonder if I watched it again, if I would think like more positively of it, less positively. I don't know. They, they obviously made the decision to not do the second half of Ford's story, which I understand. But I also, I don't know. It, it feels a little vestigial. Yeah, I mean, the vestigial is probably how I would describe it as well. Like, I think, I mean, so I went, went in knowing, like, I already knew that, that Forever 4, the episode that is, like, one of, if not, like, maybe the best individual episode of Zeta Gundam, which is where she comes back and it's where she dies and all that stuff and Amuro comes back um, and all that. I knew that that sequence was cut out. 
um, because all the Dakar stuff in all that is cut out and that like leads into the Dakar stuff. Um, so yeah, so I knew going in that like she dies like properly at the end of the movie um, or not at the end, but like the end of her story stuff in the movie. Uh, also because I had seen that sequence because it's all reanimated. Um, but yeah, I do think it's the section where you, I think you feel probably the most how much is like sort of hurt just by like having to cut stuff out mostly because the four stuff is so iconic it's like so that's just one of the most memorable stretches of the original tv show that like you can't help but feel how much is lost and it's not just four um, i i feel like even more dramatically what is lost is camille's relationship with amro is like so cut down that it feels yeah. like it's barely even there um and it's frustrating because it does feel like it's a really important piece of zeta gundam is this like really fascinating like this really weird messed up mentor mentee relationship that Amuro and Camille has where where Amuro does not want to be a mentor and he does not see Camille as like a pupil or something like that Camille doesn't want Amuro to be a mentor and yet can't help but like want him to be a mentor at the same time right and it's like there's neither of them want to occupy these roles both of them are like compelled to do so um, and it's like where Amuro gets like a lot of interesting character growth and Camille gets a lot of interesting character growth and then, but then in the TV show, all of that stuff is paid off in the episode Forever 4, where 4 is killed ultimately in the TV show. So it's like, it makes sense to like cut a lot of that down and stuff like that. But it does, I think, hurt as a fan of the TV show to like see how much that stuff gets cut out because it does feel like 4's relationship with Camille. There's a lot of good stuff in there, um, but it is cut down so much by having them having effectively spent one day together. Um, rather than it being something that takes place over the course of like a larger span of time because it's a TV show, just like naturally is going to like hurt the impact of that relationship and makes it something that's a much smaller part of Camille's character um, than it is in the TV show. Yeah, and I think it's... I'll tell you where I felt this for me is... Uh, first off, Nobuo Tobita, who plays Camille, is phenomenal mm. in these movies. Yeah. It is such a good performance. He still is able to sound youthful, but I also think... I haven't seen Zeta in a while. The the like extra twenty years of maturity he has as a voice actor, I really hear in these movies. Like he is just really good. There's a lot of weight behind his line readings. It's it's just a great performance. And there's the iconic scene in 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 the movie, and it's in this TV show too, where he is he jumps into like Forrest's cockpit and he is like at her legs and he confesses all this stuff about his like parents and his past and it's just unburdening himself and he has this really mean thing he says about fa that just like comes off the tip of his tongue and she says this line that is etched in my memory and i will never forget which is do you still hate your name camille bidon and he says you know no i don't anymore and i think it's one of the best moments in all of gundam and tobita fucking knocks that scene out of the park in this movie it is an amazing performance and yet it feels a little hollow because mm -hmm. the setup i hate my name and the payoff, do you still hate your name, are like 10 minutes apart in this yeah. movie. And there's just something about that that's like, it's just inevitable. It's like, that's that's more than any plot inconsistencies is the reason why you have to watch the TV series, not the movies, right? Like, plot is one thing, but like, it is the, the impact of seminal moments like that, that like, are fun to watch in movie form as a supplement, but there is just no replacement for the, for the real thing. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, because I mean, I mean, at its core, the, the Hong Kong stuff should be its own movie. Like that, yes. like the end of that 
whole sequence um like that's like a climax of of a movie you know like it's just so huge and one of the big things that's cut out and it's one of the places where you feel like reusing elements of the original script to create what feels like weird inconsistencies or something um a very clear example of that is a major part of the thrust in Camille and Four's relationship is that Four has lost her memories, right? And she's told that her memories have been taken from her by the the lab or whatever, the cyber new types. Yeah. And so she, her motivation is she wants to find out who she is. She wants to regain her memories. Um, that is like fundamentally why she's doing this like that. And also she's like just this, you know, been broken as a person because of the experiments that have been conducted on her. And so she has like, you know these wild manic kind of mood swings where she is either like deadly serious and threatening and then in the next moment she's running around like the fence with her like fingers like passing through the rings of the fence um which they do that scene in this movie and like i think it plays very false because her character hasn't been set up that way to have like that like light fairy manic pixie dream girl kind of quality to her she has in the tv show um but then the other thing that they do though is that Camille reaches out to her specifically saying, but we can make new memories. And then she later leaves, and that's when the Psycho Gundam comes back. Um, and then she has a line referencing that where she basically says, like, I want my own own memories. I want my old memories. Like, new memories aren't enough for me. Like, something along those lines. They have that dialogue in there in the movie, but the setup for it's totally cut out because she and Camille never have the talk about we can make new memories together that's setup's not there so when she goes crazy and flips out in the psycho gundam like part of the setup of their character relationship just has not been done because that whole sequence got cut um so that's where like a lot of the shape of the four relationship is there um but a lot of like the heart of what makes it work in the tv show is has just been totally cut I could swear there is the line about him saying we can make new memories together. I thought that was in there. Maybe I'm so that I think he he has a similar line that is in the scene where he's in her cockpit. But there's a moment before that in the TV show that sets up that dynamic of him. He like makes that offer to her, and then she like sort of violently rejects it, which is what sort of propels her into the psycho Gundam. But I completely agree with your point about like really Hong Kong should be its own movie because that's what I mean when I say this feels like two movies, like. You know, four dot. If like, if you chose to end four's story here, but also gave it like this is a big ninety minute movie, her dying and as Camille is being launched back into space to rejoin uh, with the Argama would be a killer ending to a movie. Yeah, and it's a killer scene here. Um, but yeah, it it just it's it's forty minutes. It's not a movie. Um, but yeah, and I think we already talked a lot about the second half. The, the ending of, of our queen, Haman Karn, mm-hmm. coming and saving the day and being a fucking queen. Uh, very good ending. This is very good. And I love there's a specific moment they ended on where they have Camille kind of get up in his cockpit and take off his helmet and look. And he's like, these, is, these damn adults, they just, they can't figure this out or something. Like, like you know, he's just frustrated. And he's like, also, you see how much, how far Camille has come in like, asserting himself and and starting to see the contours of this conflict and its problems very savvy ending i think yes and then yeah but the main thing is that haman karn shows up she looks very good in all the new animation that is yes. one that they didn't recast because if you tried to recast haman karn you get fucking stabbed um yes. that's what would happen um is that we would come out of the woodwork and say no um so yes yeah, yeah. yeah that whole i think that was a very because i was watching that movie like not remembering 
um, like where it was supposed to end. And so like for a long part of that second half, I'm like, where did they stop this? Like, what happens at the end of this movie? And it's like, then the fucking Gaza Seas pop up. I'm like, oh, fuck, that's right. Fucking Haman Karn is here. Um, this is a very smart place to end this movie. It is very smart. I do think they could. So they have a little bit of foregrounding of that where the Argama is headed in this movie is to rendezvous with these Axis Zeon forces. And I thought they should have played that up a little more, kind of like they do with the Jaburo stuff in uh, in the first movie, to just point us towards, like, that's our climax is over here. And I do think the Sarah stuff in in the, the Armstrong port kind of derails that mm-hmm. um, a little bit, because that is an interesting direction of, like, something's going on over in Axis, and then, like, they have this big fight with Paptimus to end the movie, and then all of a sudden Queen Haman Karn comes in and saves the day, but also dooms them all. Um, and I think, like, that could have been focused in on better. But the overall shape is good. Yeah. One thing that I do think um, is benefited by the movie version um, condensing things is I think, like, Paptimus as the main antagonist, like, comes forward much stronger in a way that I do really like in the TV version on, like, a rewatch. I think the ways that Paptimus is set up is very, like, cool. And I think it works really well for the TV show when you see it a second time. But your first time watching the TV show, I remember us having this talk when we did the Zeta Gundam episode, is that when Shiriko shows up um, in the scenes that they have in the first movie where he shows up for the first time, you don't, as a viewer, have context to, like, know that you should really be paying attention to this guy because he's going to be really important. And there's lots of interesting things they do with him in those scenes of the TV show. But... Because it's one new character amongst like a whole host of new antagonists that are constantly being introduced to every episode, he doesn't register as much. Whereas in the movies, you know, he has a lot of like prominence in that big action stuff that he shows up in movie one. And so then when he pops up in movie two again, um, and he's in a huge section of the second half of movie two, he comes forward as like the primary antagonist, I think much stronger and much more kind of obviously. I might say something even mildly controversial. I think the same is true of Haman in movie three. I think I think movie three, its big strength transitioning to this third movie, is that it has Haman and it has Paptimus, and it is built around those two. And like, there's this core of these two fucking wild cards that you like, and like, then you have Ayug and these other, and even the the Titans, frankly, both trying to figure out what the hell is their deal, and they just dominate. Like, because most of Haman Karn's scenes are still like n- not every line, but like most of her stuff is still in here. She comes across really strongly. The vocal performance, as always, is fantastic. Paptimus, it's kind of the same thing. There are more of his scenes are cut, but like overall, they really because of the condensing. Like, I think both of them just come through really strongly in that third movie as our like central sort of axis of 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 uh, of um, enemies here. Um, it's it's really good i think that's the strength of the third movie is having those two and building it around those two gives it just this really clear spine yeah so to transition to the third movie like i personally feel the third movie is like far in a way the best of the three like i think for me personally it's not even close um largely because the third movie has by far the easiest job of what to cut and what not to cut so what it cuts is it cuts all the dakar stuff so, like, the, the section of the episodes that movie three has is episodes 33 to 50, um, which I think is the most technically episode count of all of the three movies. Because the first one's 1 to 14, the second one is 14 to 32, the third one is 33 to 50. So it's about the same as, as what the second movie has to do. But what they cut is all of the Dakar stuff, and they cut all of the Rosamia stuff. 
And those are really, really clean, easy cuts to make. And in particular, the Rosamia stuff in the back half of Zeta is the worst part of the TV show. Um, and in fact, the movie doing this like highlights for me, I think, why the Rosamia stuff exists in the first place in the TV show is entirely just to give Camille something to do while everything else is happening. So you have something to cut to with Camille that he has an ongoing character arc while you're building up Shiroko, you're building up Haman, you're spending a lot more time with Char. Um, and so like all that stuff with Rosamia and, and, and then also all the stuff with uh, uh, Rekua happens here. Um, and so it gives this other thing to kind of cut to and have Camille be occupied while you're building up the other elements of the show. And you don't need that for the movie because you don't because all of it's just concentrated and focused. So they just cut all that stuff. I feel like they're really clean cuts, and it leaves this really clear core, as you were saying, of where you have this dynamic now of Shiriko sort of manipulating the Titans um, and trying to sort of like gain primacy. Haman using her position to kind of manipulate all sides, and she like is making and breaking treaties left and right. Um, and then the main thing that is hurt is Shar, like his character arc gets mostly kind of shuffled to the side because he doesn't have his big revelation of the Dakar stuff where he kind of reclaims his identity but instead you have a Camille feeling like he becomes a more active participant in the like political struggles that are happening between those major figures it's you know the way I feel about the Shar stuff is it's sort of like the Lord of the Rings theatrical cuts versus the extended cuts where one of the ways Peter Jackson and company in the theatrical cuts they talk about this a bunch is one of the ways they made edits was Frodo is the main character so Frodo stuff has to stay prime um, and so in the theatrical cuts you get stuff like uh, Faramir you know in movie two is just way less developed and I think that's a weakness of the theatrical cut but I also like understand where that comes from because Faramir is not Frodo um, but then you watch the extended cut and you get that and I do think it's better overall but I also understand why they made these cuts for theaters I kind of understand that here Char is Char is Char we love Char obviously and all of that stuff like what the Dakar stuff is some of the best stuff in Zeta Gundam it's just some of the best stuff in Gundam I mean it's phenomenal stuff but Camille does have to be the main character and it would be hard to edit that in movie form and properly contextualize Camille. So mm -hmm. I totally, I have no problem with that at all as, as a choice. Like I think it's the, the right choice to make for this. And I agree with everything you're saying, Sean. I have trouble though quite saying this is my favorite of the three movies because I think it does all these smart, savvy things and then I think the, the ending and how they've changed it just fucks all of that. Because, like, building around that axis of Paptimus and, and Haman doesn't really work when the ending is... Paptimus is killed, and Haman, I guess, just gives up? Like, the, the kicker of Zeta Gundam is that Haman just fucking wins. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they try to change this into an ending where Ayug wins, and I don't buy it for a second, and I don't think I would buy it if I hadn't seen the show. Like, I just don't think it works with what they've given us. So that's where it kind of falls apart for yeah, me. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree, but that's like eight minutes of the movie. And like, and sure. especially since I already knew that that's how it ended. Like, it was very yeah. easy for me to get to the point where Camille fucking rams the fucking Zeta Gundam into Shiriko's chest, the like one of the great all-time villain deaths in the history yes. of anything. And just be like, a, I had a great time watching this. I know that the ending, because I had already seen the <laughs> next eight minutes. I know the rest yeah. of this is a dumb change. Um, but I'm able to be like, a, and then this is where the movie's over. Because I remember what the TV show ending is, and it's perfect. Um, so it's yeah. like, I, I really, we should just make an edit of this movie that just replaces the ending with just the TV show ending. And then it's like, there, done, perfect. It's I thought great, you were going to say... 
I thought you were going to say it's an edit where it, it, it like freeze frames on Shiroko where his face is like all distorted as he's getting stabbed. And then it just cuts to credits from that. Yeah, you, yeah, you want to give Camille his little his little moment at the end, and then it's just, it's, yeah. you know, you, you then you just end. Um, yeah, so yeah. I agree that like the ending decision is is really dumb, um, but like the journey along the way, this just is to me the most these movies feel like Zeta Gundam. Like it feels like it gets no, totally. the tone, it gets the feeling, like it gets the like mushiness of Zeta in a way that the other two movies that stuff ends up getting cut out because like all like the human drama and like the the tenseness of the story of Zeta feels like it gets kind of washed away by like the like really heightened plot pace that they have to go for whereas here it is like in many ways like I do think this is like an improvement on elements that you have here in this section of the TV show which this is the only time in any of these three movies that I think that that happens whereas I think there are moments throughout like if you go with the original Mobile Suit Gundam trilogy of movies I think there are several sequences in those movies that do it better than the TV show um, oh yeah, it's yeah. through all three. There's one. There's ones where they do it worse too, but there's plenty in all three movies. You could list lots of examples. Yeah, and I don't yeah. think movie one or two have anything that feels to me like it is a better version of that stuff. Like the ending of movie one has like that's a cool different version of the scene where Char and Amro see each other, but that scene is also like incredible in the original. And the, like I don't know yeah. if I would say the new version is better here. Like I think, I it, think yeah, pushing Haman and pushing Shiroko up to the front and kind of like pulling a lot of the other stuff aside and just getting that what is like mostly what this movie is is like about the last eight episodes of zeta just like fucking shot into your goddamn heart and that's it like with all the resume stuff just cut out um and it fucking rules yeah and i think as you say camille i think comes forward better and yeah i mean that they kind of recast the main trio in this movie as camille haman and poptimus and then char becomes kind of like the the supporting character of those three which is they're much more equal in the tv show um but i also think camille gets a little diluted down the home stretch because of that so yeah it's overall i would still say the tv show is the better version but oh, yes, it, yeah. it's yeah but you're right i mean there are some absolute like very savvy things they do here that do feel like improvements and it is the one that by far works on its own terms as a movie the most because it's just you start with haman and you are off to the races. I think the only like super awkward cut, honestly, is going from them escaping Haman to then going back to Haman it has to happen so fast because mm-hmm. of its movie form that that's a little whiplashy. Um, but you still get the great, you know, scenes of Shuichi Ikeda having to like voice a like repentant Char trying to get Haman on his side and all of that. Um, it's it's very good and just I think like it's not that they've added Haman Karn stuff, but I think you know she is not the most important character here in the show because it's mostly set up for her in double zeta but like pulling all of her scenes out and putting them in one movie and like just getting this 90 minute injection of haman karn is really fucking great it's it's awesome yeah i just i just enjoyed the viewing experience of the of this movie a lot yeah. um and, and a lot of it is just because it's like the fucking ending of zeta gundam is so unbelievably good like like yes. and not just like the ending ending like the whole build-up the just like the way that everything just sort of breaks to pieces in this this sort of stalemate that the different factions are in and it's just this messy fucking fucked up war where everyone just dies left and right it's like and and, you know like people betray the whatever side they're on like people are manipulating like all that stuff just comes across really well in the movie um and it just yeah it's just it it 
the fucking beginning of Zeta fucking rules, I guess. Is I point. had the exact same reaction, Sean. And I think, you know, they do most of the final two episodes. Like, mm-hmm. kind of like the original Gundam movies do. Like, most of that is in here. Um, and it is just, it is so good. Like, I realized, because it's about halfway through the movie, you enter the climax. And I realized where we were. And I'm like, oh my god, this is, they're doing it. They're doing all of it. And it is so fucking great. Yeah, it is just such a triumph and achievement. And honestly, like, that home stretch until the epilogue has like the least new animation because it's like zeta's perfect what do you do with it yeah you don't need it because because it's also here is where i think like the original zeta those last two episodes like they're just like directorial choices they make where they just like go very extreme aesthetically in a way the show had not done so you have like the scene where camille and haman have their like psychic face-off and just everything just gets washed in this like red light and they're like the the like the black lines of the characters' faces and stuff just get incredibly exaggerated. Um, and like I had kind of forgotten just how stylized some of that stuff is. Or when Patmos gets killed and his character just completely distorts. Um, and it's something that like Zeta never is like that um, up to that point. Yeah. It never like pushes like the design off model um, for like aesthetic purposes. It's only because they didn't have budget and like. You know, we're not going to redo this cut. Let's just let it in there. That's the only reason anything would be off model in the original show. Here, they're like they're pushing things because everything has been pushed to this extreme limit of like human emotion. Um, as like the boundaries of reality fucking fall apart because people are having these psychic visions and coming together and breaking apart in that way. Um, so yeah, like there are really notable sequences in Zeta Gundam here that are like some of the most iconic scenes, like the theater scene, Hamon and Camille facing off, um, Camille and Patmos's last battle that they do almost no new animation for just because you couldn't improve on it. So like why spend the money doing the redoing, redoing that animation when it just is fucking perfect. You don't need to do anything. It would, would look worse in many ways because you couldn't convey, I think the same aesthetic style with the modern animation as what Zeta Gundam did as a TV show in 1985. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. I also just want to, again, give a shout out to the musical score. Like, oh, God, yeah. The, the Shigayaki Saigusa score for Zeta, and then Double Zeta and Shars Counterattack, they are all phenomenal. It's a great era of Gundam music. And like the, it, like the music in Zeta is such a flex because it is so big and cinematic and like sweeping. And it is just like you take those tracks and they didn't re-record them. You just put some of those verbatim tracks in this movie and it fits perfectly because it's movie music. It's so good. And I think the new compositions he's done for this are also fantastic. But it's just, man, because they also hold off in the movie trilogy on using a couple of those key cues that are used a bunch of times in the show. But they hold off on mm-hmm. letting them use where they were originally used in the closing episodes for those moments because mwah, it's just too good to pass up, you know? Yeah, it's definitely a thing where, like, it being a movie and in, in by virtue of that it's not like reusing the same tracks over and over again the way the tv show does it makes the music feel so fresh um because it's just like like it is one of the best ways i think to enjoy the zeta gundam soundtrack is to watch these movies just because it, it like you get this really great you know action and all of that with the music and you're not repeating the same like handful of battle themes because it is using the full like breadth of that soundtrack for three 90 minute movies rather than across a 50 episode TV show, you're going to hear like, Oh yeah, this is like the battle theme we had two episodes ago and then three episodes before that. And so on and so forth, where it kind of dilutes the like impact of hearing the music Um, here. It's just like, 
I, I, yeah, I was constantly being like, oh, fuck, yes, the music in Zeta Gundam it fucking rules. It's so good. This, all this shit is so good. It's just the ending of Zeta Gundam fucking is great. Great. Before we move on to the ending ending of the movies, uh, I did want to shout out just one other, like, actor thing. I think Bin Shimada as Paptimus, I think he's even better in the movies. Mm-hmm, I he agree. is so good. And, like, he's another one who was, like, a young actor, kind of new in 85, and by 2005, you can just, he carries more weight into the booth. And Paptimus, like, to the point where I was checking, like, was this recast? Like, I don't remember Paptimus, like, striking me vocally this much. But he was, like, I when he's on screen, you're you're paying attention. It's a really good performance. Yeah, I agree. Like, I, I really love all the work he does as Shiroko in the original show. But, yeah, it does, it definitely... A combination of, like, most, if not all of his, like, I mean, all of his major scenes and even some, like, his less major scenes, like, make the cut in this movie. Um, and then, yeah, that that coupled, like, that focus on Shiriko combined with his additional experience as an actor. Um, yeah, I think this is, like, the best that character is, basically, is in this movie. Yeah. So, great stuff. Less great stuff. Um, I, so, I knew what was coming with the ending. I knew that, like, Camille did not psychologically die i knew that it was a happier ending but i guess i kind of assumed that tomino would have put more work into it Mm -hmm. (laughs) that like something would have like and i think where the the warning flashes started like ringing for me sean is cats dies and then you know uh, rekoa dies and then emma dies and like everyone who dies dies and i'm like how do you do any of this and not do the ending where camille psychologically dies like I think the scene that was the most powerful for me in this was so uh, I don't I don't think I said it on the show at the time but like having seen so much Gundam now I will firmly say Emma Sheen's death is my favorite death in Gundam I think um, her and Camille like have such a great kind of casual relationship over the course of that show because they are like it's like a brothers in arms relationship Mm -hmm. they are not lovers but they are real friends who have been like a friendship forged in battle together. And just their final conversation where they know she's dying. There's nothing they can do. They're in that airlock. He makes her this promise and then he leaves. And it is one of my like two or three favorite images in all of Gundam is when he repressurizes and she just, her body just floats up lifeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, amazing. And they keep all that in the movie because it's phenomenal. The problem is if you keep that in the movie, he has to have his fate because the setup of that scene is I'm going to take on all this pain and symbolically I'm not coming back from this. Like it's, it's really fucking clear that Camille walks out of that airlock knowing he is not surviving this intact. That's just that, that is the subtext of that scene and that is the sadness of it. Um, And so if your ending is every inch of it is the same, Except Paptimus doesn't have his final line about cursing Camille. And then Camille goes, I'll just get a new helmet. <laughs> it's yeah. like, it's, it's so, so jarring. It's more jarring than any cut between old and new animation in these three movies. It is so jarring. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. Like, like this is something that, like, I went through, like, two years ago. So, like, for me, it's just, like, this fact I've known for a long time of... Man, the fucking ending to those of that movie. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I never, I think, watched the movies through as movies is like I just knew that ending sucked. Um, because, yeah, because... And actually, I was kind of surprised watching it through all the way that I thought there would... I didn't think there would be enough context to be able to justify it because I knew that 
the characters died and stuff. I, because enough of that is reanimated that, like... Because, like, Enema's death is reanimated, even if they do, like, the same sort of general direction on it. Um, right. And so it's like, I knew that they didn't, like, change that. All those people still die. I was like, there's just... No, you can't make this ending work. It just doesn't... You you could make the ending work if you changed a lot of what happens leading up to it. I think there is a way to do a more, like, directly hopeful ending to Zeta Gundam if you set it up that way. Um, but they don't because they can't um like if you would have to that would be you'd have to reanimate the whole fucking thing like i just don't think there's a way for you to change that much of what the ending is without really dramatically changing so much of what the build-up is enough that you wouldn't be able to reuse all this old footage and stuff and i suspect that that is probably what happened um like i suspect that tomino had the idea that he really wanted to try to do this like more hopeful ending to zeta because he looked back on it um, and wanted to do something different that was more in line with like his this more hopeful direction he kind of moved in as a creator um but i just don't think there was any way for that to be done without you doing a whole new movie and so it just kind of feels like they had that idea they fucking just stuck that ending on there and it feels so stuck on there it is such a bizarre like because again every the almost the entire fight between Paphimus and Camille is just the footage from the original show including the fucking ramming the goddamn wave rider into his goddamn chest um and so you go from that to all of a sudden Camille being like oh that was crazy man i got to get a new helmet anyways looks like we won and then you have this like epilogue where you get like a couple of scenes of the white base people on earth who are also and that's where you get also like a weird whiplash where they're like oh i wonder if Katz is doing okay and you're like no he died he's dead he's dead with his ghost <laughs> girlfriend up in space like you're never seeing cats anymore Frau. sorry um it's like yeah there's like just something very weird to that where it wants to have this sort of more happy ending and yet it's still 99 percent of it is just the ending to zeta gundam which is dark as shit it's also like even with the problem of everything else is there, it's just kind of an artless version of this. Mm -hmm. It's it's literally like it's all old footage through his helmet breaking, the visor and all of that. And then it is and then he has the same reaction where he kinda of looks up and looks around and he's like, Oh, we won. You know, and it's like it's just such an abrupt it would be like if in Victory Gundam they did like a Victory Gundam trilogy and got to the end and you have the scene where Katagina comes back and like is talking to what's her name? The 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 other main yeah, girl Shakti. In, yeah Shakti and Shakti's like oh Katagina and then Katagina turned and went and then like took her hood off and was like Shakti hey and they're like yeah you want to come back to the village yeah and then they go back and have a party like uh -huh. that's what this would be like it would be like you do all the same stuff but then suddenly just a out of left fucking tonal field like curveball it's so weird it's just fucking weird it because would be it, like it would be like the end of char's counterattack. only they push away axis and then amro and char both survive and they look at each other it's like char's just like you know what you're right amro we should believe in the wisdom <laughs> of humanity and their gundam the, the new gundam and the sazabi fucking hold hands. i know the sazabi's destroyed at that point but they hold hands and fly <laughs> off into space together and then fucking beyond the time starts playing you know, it, it's just like, you can't do that. You can't just take the entire thematic <laughs> thrust of this story and then just all of a sudden at the end be like, and everything was fine. Except for I, like the 50 people that got murdered in the past 30 minutes. I really want the fan animation of the Sazabi and the new Gundam holding hands and flying off together with like glitter behind them as Beyond the Time kicks mm -hmm. in. Yeah, yeah be, I a want very that. good ending. Yeah, it's because it's basically what it is. I mean, what it really is, is a very, like, bad, watered-down version of F91, where yeah. it is, 
the idea is like this human connection in space. Oh my God, we survived. I am holding out. I, I am touching you because like that physicality means so much to me in this moment. But like F-91 does that astonishingly well, perfectly. It's one of the best Gundam moments of all time. And this is like a pretty pale imitation of that in a story where the F-91 ending has no place, you know? Yeah. Mm. So that's what it comes down to for me. And then the epilogue, like, I do like seeing Fraubo and Amuro again. That's nice. I feel bad for poor Fraubo, but, you know, it's another scene with her. Um, the Haman Karn stuff is just utterly baffling. I yeah. really don't know how to read any of that. Like, because also, like, I feel like this version leans in heavier on the idea that that's not actually Mina Vizabi, which is, like, intimated in double Zeta. But, like, it has to be her if they're doing the whole thing where she's going to go get educated on Earth. I don't know. It's very weird. Yeah, yeah, the Haman, I'm with you. Like, I don't really understand what the purpose of the Haman stuff is there. Like, it doesn't... Because it's, like... And this and this became, like, a little bit of, like, a... Controversy is too strong of a word. But, like, it became a discussion in the Gundam fandom after these movies came out of where Devil Zeta can't happen with the changes to this ending, right? Because, like, Haman is not victorious, so there's nobody for, like, Judo to fight against. There's no reason for the Argama to end up at Shangri-La and pick up Judo. Like, you know, even if there was some reason, Camille is fine and he can just could pilot the fucking Double Zeta Gundam if he wanted to. Um, and so it became a, like, what's canon now? Like, is there, like, a new canon going forward? And then ultimately, like, no, nothing pays attention to it. I think there's, like, one manga spinoff that, like, does stuff that's, like, vaguely references the movie version of the ending but other than that like everything has just been like no it's just the tv show is the tv show because because if double zeta doesn't happen then you know fucking char's counterattack doesn't happen like char has no reason to be the char and char's counterattack if fucking camille is totally fine over there you feel like he would just go like hang out with camille and like kind of relieve some stress and it would like the hopefulness of it means it doesn't feel like there's room for char to have this like apocalyptic attitude of everything must burn down or humanity is doomed because we are like chained to this planet. Um, exactly. So, yeah. And that's also what confuses me is they don't resolve Char. Uh -huh. There's no like, cause it's double or uh, the original Zeta has the ending where the, the Hyakushiki floats by and it's like an intimation Char survived. That's not in here. Did I miss it? There's nothing else with Char. I don't. I I wasn't paying super close attention to when the ending credits played, so they might have had that shot in there. But I, I didn't was paying it. close attention to the ending credits. I just wondered if there was an Easter egg somewhere else I missed because they just don't. They just don't do anything with them, and I thought that was very weird. Yeah, you know, maybe Shar died. This. Yeah, maybe they yeah. just blew up Shar. Yeah. Oh well. So maybe this is like a super happy version where Shar's counterattack. Double. No double Zeta. No Shar's counterattack. This is the end. Which actually makes me sad because those are two really good things. Yeah. And then, then you just need like the Earth Federation, like president of the Earth Federation to like drive up to Camille and be like, you know what? We should believe in you, youth. And then here we give you like <laughs> the keys to the kingdom, basically. You can run the world now, Camille. And like you and your friends. Um, and everything yeah. is perfect. Except all your friends are dead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Except for Cats yeah. is dead. Sorry. Except for Cats, yeah. And Emma and Rekoa and everyone yeah. you've cared about in the course of this show, except Fa, who you haven't cared about very well. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, here's one thing I do love about the ending, and we have to talk about this. This was the final role of Hirotaka Suzuoki. Um, this is the last time he played Captain Bright. Uh, this movie came out in March, and he died in August of 2006 of lung cancer. Mm -hmm. I do think there are a couple of moments where you can hear a little vocal strain in his voice. 
Um, but overall, it's the same great Hirotaka Suzuoki performance you get every time. And the final lines in a new translation are, they are listening to Fa and Camille like celebrating outside, uh, the people on the Argama. And one of them offers it up to, to Bright, like, do you need to hear this? And he says, I can figure out for myself what they're talking about. Who wants to listen to childish nonsense? And that's the end of the movie. And I feel like it's probably impossible that they planned that as a send-off for Suzuoki and Captain Bright. You could not write a better send-off for Suzuoki's performance as Captain Bright than that line about childish nonsense. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful and perfect. Yeah, I, I it, do love that moment. Yeah, it's very good. And it definitely is like a... It feels like... So it feels like the 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 bright you get in Double Zeta, right? Where he like he has that like twinkle in his eye as he says it, because he's yeah. like he now fully believes in the generation to come. Um, yeah, because that is like one of the things about the ending. Like I think it's like the ending is totally inappropriate for the story that they told. But like that whole scene of the crew of the Argama like listening in, and the one dude, the comms dude, like doing impressions of their voices as he's hearing them. Like I think that scene fucking is great. It just doesn't fit into this movie. Um, yeah, in any way. that's a good way to put it. Yeah, um, this was the last time Hirotaka Suzuoki would be in Gundam. This is also the last time uh, Daisuke Gori would be mm -hmm. in Gundam. Um, he is not huge in Gundam, but he does play. Um, he's Baskom, right? He's Baskom, but he's Dozel's. He's Dozel Zabi in right. Gundam, the TV show. In the movies, I don't know why, but in the movies, it's Tesho Genda. Tesho Genda is also wonderful. They're both very good versions of Dozel Zabi, um, but he was Dozel in the original Gundam. And then he's Baskom in Zeta, and he returns as Baskom here. He's really good in this in these mm -hmm. three movies. Like I feel like Baskom gets just also like foregrounded a little bit more. Uh, and there's some new scenes with Baskom and and I mean Daisuke Gori. I've probably talked about him on the show before. If you don't know, Daisuke Gori is just like one of my favorite actors of all time, voice or otherwise. And not a day goes by I am not sad that, that he is no longer with us. Um, it breaks my fucking heart. He was a tremendous actor, uh, and I just this was he died a couple years after this movie, but but this. Would have been the last Gundam thing he did, mm -hmm. other than maybe a, a video game if Baskom was in a video game. Um, but yeah, so kind of a kind of a kind of melancholy in that sense. There's a couple actors in this that are no longer with us. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to other stuff about the ending. Uh, like one thing that is weird about the ending uh, is I remember. So you know they do all the ghost stuff thing, where it's like like Camille has the visions of all the people he's met who have died. Um, that have helped him out. Um, and then in that mix, they don't cut out Rosamia, so she's just there still. And I found that very funny because in the movie version, the only time she shows up is in the end of the first movie. I think she's like in an action scene of the second movie as well. But like she, you never get the like, she's been brainwashed to think that Camille is her big brother, like all that shit from the TV show. Like that's just yeah. not there. You never see her die. So I find it very funny that they didn't try to like find some way to cut out that shot of Rosamia in the ghost people, because it's like, wait, why are you here? If you watch this without ever having seen the TV show, you'd be very confused about who that was. Yes. Yeah. I was slightly confused, Sean, because I had forgotten the Rosamia stuff. I'm going to be perfectly honest. Someone made a point about that on Twitter, and I had to go look up, like, wait, who was Rosamia? And then I remembered it. But, like, off the top of my head, I could not <laughs> tell you that. <laughs> it is indeed the weakest part of Zeta Gundam. Um, although it works okay in the show. Yeah. Would not have worked in the movie. They made the right choice. No, that would, um, this would have been a very, very tedious movie if they tried to do all the Rosamia stuff. 
Any other thoughts on the movies themselves? I have one other thing I wanted to talk about really quick. Yeah, because that was the thing I was going to bring up because you, I assume you want to talk about Char's line from the beginning of 3. Oh, I had forgotten about that. I had a different yeah. thing. But yeah, we can talk about the line. Because um, yeah, you, you did a whole like Twitter detective thing you did with the dialogue that I assumed yeah. you wanted to talk about. Yeah, it's not that in-depth, but I just looked at... So, okay, so Char has the the famous... the We, we both, Sean, you and you agreed with me on this when uh-huh. I said this line is the Rosetta Sto- Stone of Shara's novel. Yep. It's when you are on the ship with uh, Haman Karn, and they're breaking out, and Char has the gun pointed at Haman, and she says, so you're betraying us. And he says, in the original TV show, he says, I have never even once betrayed anyone, Haman. Um, and in Japanese, what he says is, Motomoto watashi wa uragiri wa isai shite inayo, Haman. And that is a pretty literal translation to say I have yeah. never. He is like he is like. There are multiple points in that phrasing where he is saying like, from the beginning, never ever have I done this ever, Haman, and like it is punctuated with her name. Like yeah, it is it extremely is, insistent. Yeah, he very. It's a very hard emphasis he puts on. Uh, I have never once betrayed anybody. Yeah, in the movie, and it's very. It stands out because it's the the reanimated shot in this mm-hmm. sequence. Is Shar says motomoto watashi wa uragite wa inai, which is just a much more like plain. You said I betrayed someone. I have not betrayed anyone. Yeah. Um. And and even you you can listen also like Shuichi Keda's inflection is much plainer. Like he's been directed to do it like less. Like he says it indignantly in Zeta Gundam. It's more plain here. Yeah. Um, the, the line delivery is very intense in the TV show, partially because yes. I mean. I mean, we'll talk about it, but like it becomes at, like near the end of that episode. Like it is like one of like yeah. the major like climactic points of the story of that episode, which is mostly from Char's POV. Yes, um, it's early in the movie. Obviously, it's the opening sequence. It happens yeah. five minutes into the movie. Um, but I just found it interesting because it's a famous line, and it is notable that it is like the one shot in that sequence that like okay, a, a choice was clearly made. We want this line different, and we want it different enough that we're gonna pay for the five seconds of animation to do it and i just find it interesting i i don't know i can't quite square the circle of why tomino chose to do that i wonder if like he saw all the memes and like thought uh, he didn't want this memed either i don't know it just kind of was like it beca- it takes a moment that is like so powerful and iconic and make and kind of neuters it i i thought yeah i've, I've like there's no like i did a little bit of digging around like not expecting to find anything but there's no like indication that like I was, there's like there's isn't like an indication that like broadly speaking that the fandom like puts as much emphasis on the scene as we do. Like I think people like the scene, but it's not like the yeah. like when people do an impression of Char, they don't do that line. They do the like let's see what the abilities of this so-called Earth Federation suit are, or like yes. one never wants to reflect on the mistakes of their youth. Like those lines from the original Gundam. So it's like it, it is a great scene, but it's not necessarily like the Gundam scene um, for Char in terms of like the broader fandom my assumption is that the reason why they made that change is entirely just because that scene comes in like the first five minutes of the movie and it would i I suspect they're like it would feel inappropriate to for a character that they have not put a huge amount of emphasis on char in the movie version to have this here's this big intense care like moment with this character at the very beginning of this movie that also is not really going to be picked up on that much in the movie because Char's in Haman's stuff is relatively de-emphasized compared to her relationship to Shiriko and her relationship to Camille. And that's my guess. I'm guessing that they just didn't want to, like, at the beginning of the movie, have, like, this big, like, mic drop of a moment with Char that just yeah. kind of comes out of nowhere shortly after the opening credits. 
I think that's fair. And yeah, it's just, it, but it's also distracting because you expect if you if you'd seen the show, you expect it to come, and it is very odd that like your Jashar's side of the conversation is reanimated, you know, and and you're he's talking to a animated figure from 1985, but he is from 2005. It's very odd, you know. Yeah, no, it, it's a, it's a, I agree, it's a weird moment. Like it was one I was like waiting for. And then he said it, and I was like, "Oh, this is that's not what it." Because I yeah. was like, I didn't look up what the line of dialogue was, but I'm like, I'm pretty sure that he's like said a lot more. In like, it was like it's because it's also like the animation. Like, if you look back at like that scene in the original TV show, like he's got this fucking scowl on his face it's, where you, you see, can see you, in my you see the man, you see the man yes. underneath all of that that just like has this intense conviction about the way he understands himself um, that comes through there. Um, the man who always wears his mask in there, the mask comes off. Yes. Well, for you know, if you look at my tweet, I have the screenshots, and it's also much closer in. You are really close in on his face. And in the movie version, it's, a, it's like a medium shot. Uh, there are not these like wrinkles under his eyes where he's scowling. It's just... It's just a normal Char line. And that's, yeah, that's fine. But, but yeah, it does take away something extraordinary from that scene. Yeah. That's okay. All, it, all it, it does to me is, like, like point me back to be like, oh, I should go watch that scene again. And I watch the scene again. Yes. Like, fucking God damn it. This moment is so good in the TV show. Yes. And it, like, and it, I think even if they tried to play it the same way in the movie, it just, I don't think it would have worked because it's like you haven't built him up in this movie in this way um like it's just like you don't have that connection to char within the context of what they've done with the movie version yes so i agree with all that um all right uh here's one other thing i wanted to bring up though sean this is kind of a thought experiment okay i made a note on twitter while i was watching these movies that i think it would be i do kind of regret that we do not have a double zeta movie trilogy the way we do for the first two shows and someone said, oh, but that would, Double Zeta would be really hard. And I think the exact opposite. I think Double Zeta would be fairly easy to do. It'd be way um, easier than Zeta, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, for one, Double Zeta is a little shorter. It's 46 full episodes. There's the, the prelude episode that obviously you wouldn't have in there. I think there's a bunch of stuff in Double Zeta that are like very easy cuts. There's all the like Phantom Colony stuff. Um, all the opening stuff in Shangri-La, you could cut down very easily into like a 30-minute first act. Um, and then, like, I also think the break points are relatively clear to me. Like, I'm looking over the episode list again, Sean, and if you start with Shangri-La, and then, you know, the second half of that movie is off into space, I think the obvious, like, climax to that movie is when Judo goes rogue and goes off to try to save Lena, mm -hmm. and um, probably ending with him, like, meeting play on, um, and, like, encountering Judo and all of that stuff before he... Um, gets back to the the Argama. It's like about 18 episodes, but again, a lot of that is the stuff on Shangri-La where you can, like I would go up to episode 18 specifically, which is called Play and Axis, um, which is all of that stuff. And it ends with, with Judo back on the ship and the Argama retreating from Haman. And then uh, at that point, you would start the second movie around episode 19, which is where you have Argama going to Granada and getting their new orders for the first time. And so you have like this direction. You could build that second movie largely around the relationship between Judo and Play and the other like characters that are there because you have a lot of good character relationship stuff. And then you have a super obvious climax in the Dublin colony drop, uh, which is also where Play dies. And so you have a real clear spine to that second movie. And then your spine to the third movie is the Nail Argama and the, the new ship that they have and the kids going off on their own and the final battle with Haman and all the stuff with, um, what's his face? Glimmy the, Toto. The, yeah, Glimmy Toto. So I just feel like if they ever want to do it, I feel like the trilogy structure is super clear. 
it's also a very well animated show. Um, I would not mind seeing Tomino do that one day just to complete the like trifecta uh, and maybe maybe make people look at Double Zeta again. And I feel like Double Zeta is one that would it would like I think its reputation might be restored in some circles if you had a like focused version of it to point to like that that could get people to reassess it. So that is my pitch for a Double Zeta trilogy. Yeah, I, I agree with your like where you would do like start and stop those movies. Um, there is no way in hell they will ever do it. <laughs> like that's no, no like but... it's just partially like you know. Like I feel like, regardless of like the the fact that Double Zeta is not held up to that as high of regard as Zeta, like you just don't do. I mean, you just generally speaking, you don't do compilation movies for like ongoing TV anime now, anyways, because like anime production doesn't do. Here's yeah. like a 50 episode TV show. Like it's incredibly rare. Um, the most you almost ever get is something that is 25 episodes. Um, that then you'll come back for like two years later, then you'll get the next 25 episodes in My Hero Academia or something like that. So I think our, our yeah. hopes of a double Zeta Gundam movie will never come to be. I don't need it. I'm just saying like, I mean, ultimately you should go watch the show cause it's a great fucking show, yeah. but you can make something very good out of it. And I think it's too bad that doesn't exist, but it's fine. The show exists. It's great. It's perfect. Well, it's not perfect, but it's, it's, it's very, very good. It's very, very good. Yeah. Very, very good. Top shelf Gundam. All right. Um, before we close today, Sean, I think we need to talk about the future of weekly suit Gundam because there's some exciting stuff coming. Yes, absolutely. So uh, I guess this, this actually segues from what I was just saying of, uh, you know, it, they don't make anime like they used to, by which I mean they, you know, they 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 realized at some point uh, in the mid two thousands maybe we can't make fifty two episodes of animation or like fifty to fifty two episodes of animation in a year. Uh, that's fucking madness. Let's leave that for like the one pieces of the world that like you know we have these like weird anime factories that just like make one weekly episode of One Piece or Sazae San or like whatever the fuck is gonna go on forever and ever and ever Boruto. Um, but most animation moves away from the structure, the four core show or the like year long running show that is kind of like the root of where Gundam, the tradition of Gundam comes out of and instead moves into where the next phase of Gundam is the modern anime industry where you now have what is much more common, which is two core shows. Um, meaning about 24 to 26 episodes. And then you, you know, have multiple quote unquote seasons, um, of that. And that's where Gundam goes. So, in respect of that, looking at uh, Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zero, which is the next Gundam show um, in the timeline, uh, that show airs um, what is effectively two seasons of about 24 episodes apiece. But in the middle is a time jump. And this is the same structure that Iron-Blooded Orphans uses. Um, and Double O Gundam also has a movie, Waking of the Trail of the Laser, at the end. So we're going to treat those um, as basically their own episodes of the podcast. So we will have three episodes on Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zero. The first one tackling that first season, quote unquote. Like if you see it referred to as it's like we in the West will refer to them as seasons. So season one is Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zero. And then we'll do an episode on season two. And then we'll do an episode on the movie as well. That is also how we will handle Iron-Blooded Orphans for sure, of the Sands of the movie, because there isn't one. And that might be also how we do Gundam Age. Actually, I would have to look at it because I don't remember how the episode counts break down. But Gundam Age has something that is fairly similar, so we'll probably It's also definitely a two-season split. I've yeah. looked it up. I don't know if it's it's as big a split. but Yeah, Gundam Age, it's like the structure of Gundam Age is slightly weird. So like I, I would have to think about it for a second to see if we would want to split it up slightly differently. But I think we'll probably just do that in two. 
But the upside is you guys are going to be getting more episodes faster because we can watch 24 episodes faster than we can watch 50. Um, and it's going to be a little kind of like going back to our roots, Sean, where we did Gundam like in, in episode chunks where for Gundam Double Zero Season 1, I will have seen Season 1, but I won't have seen Season 2. So that'll be kind of, we'll have that like newbie veteran split a little more, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm, I think yeah, this I'm, is going to be great. Yeah, I'm very excited for, for doing it this way. I mean, I'm just... I'm extraordinarily excited to watch Gundam Double Zero because it's one I've wanted to rewatch for quite some time. It's, you know, we're going widescreen. We're going fucking HD, baby. It is a thing where in my head, the, like, Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zero and Sea Destiny were made like 10 years apart because it's like the gap <laughs> between, like, the style is so huge. Um, and then this is the other great thing about it is that we are now, like, you know, with the modern era of anime, I guess you could have done this with Seed and Seed Destiny for the HD version, but Double Zero is also available on streaming services. So if you have Crunchyroll, you can get um, Double Zero there as well. So if you want to keep up with us um, and want to watch it on a streaming service, you can do it there, which is how I'm going to watch it. I think everything we are covering for the foreseeable future is on streaming services, mm-hmm. on, is on Crunchyroll, other than yeah. maybe the Double Zero movie and the OVA version of the origin, I don't think is. Yeah. Um, but you can, but the OVA version of the origin is on Blu-ray. You can find it very easily. Um, so we've got lots of good stuff coming, and you know, like I said, probably more episodes, maybe um, you know, two a month instead of one a month. We'll see how we go. Um, but I am going to be starting that show tonight, probably because I am extremely excited, and that should be coming soon. Yes. So next time on Weekly Suit Gundam, we will be covering episodes one to twenty-five of Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zero, or as I like to call it in my head because I find it very funny, Double O Gundam.